It was the wayfarer-like air of the foreigner working on his imagination, or some other corporeal or mental influence that caused it. A strange distension of his soul unexpectedly made itself known, a sort of roving unrest, a juvenile thirst for the distant, a feeling so novel and yet so long forgotten that he, hands on his back and eyes fixed at the ground, stood transfixed to probe that emotion in its nature and aim. It was wanderlust, nothing more, but verily coming in the form of a fit and ardently intensified, even to the point of an illusion, because he saw, as a sample of all those wonders and horrors of the diversity of earth which his desire was suddenly able to imagine, an enormous landscape, a tropical swamp under a moist and heavy sky, wet, lush and unhealthy, a primordial wilderness of islands and mud-bearing backwaters that men avoid. Cool. Right. At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. I'm Lucy, and I'm here with Sean. Hello. And this is the second episode in our new season, and it in fact marks an eerie parallel to our first season during the earliest days of 2018, uh, when we first did, well, we started off with an episode looking at kind of like weird technology-related ghosts, and then um, followed it up with an episode about Don't Look Now, which is set in Venice, and we're returning to Venice in this episode, so weird, crazy. Um, and also, while we're trying to trying not to dwell on it over much, it should be noted that this is a sadly apt time to be recording an episode about a film that features an onset of a pandemic in the Italian peninsula. Weirdly, actually, we planned this for months in advance, and um, we've been it, intending yeah. to record an episode on on death in Venice since last year uh, when I read the well, book. Well, I mean, but yeah, I mean, this was like. This was one of the episodes that when we were in the earliest planning meetings talking about the podcast, I was like, I want to keep the the spectrum of what we cover as broad as possible so that, you know, we can do Death in Venice. I really want to do Death in Venice. And it's been over two years and now that's finally happened. And um, that's delightful. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Very good. It's very good. Yeah, film. it's very good. <laughs> it's just um, timing. Oops. Um, but, um, okay, so usually when we... Um, when we do the kind of like the essay segment, the, you know, the bit where we introduce something kind of separate but related to the film or something integral to the film, but as, um, as a separate section uh, outlining it independently of the film, um, we, it's usually something to do with genre or a particular kind of historical mode. And um, this is one where dealing very specifically with a critical tradition, which we haven't done too much, but it's almost like a kind of, genre or recurrent thing in and itself because it's something that has so many iterations throughout um critic you know various strands of theory uh from well before Nietzsche and from Nietzsche into the 20th century and that is the um the concept of the dual nature of the uh the Apolline and the Dionysian and I believe Sean you wanted to talk a little bit about that why yes I did Lucy thank you very much uh yes yeah, so we are going to spend some time um on wrestling with these uh, concepts uh and there's well there's two reasons I want to spend some time on this one is because for the obvious reason that um the dueling between these two concepts runs right through uh, the text. It's um, it's one of the most commonly cited sort of themes moving through it. And uh, secondly, it's it's also 
well, to be frank, to be kind of try be a bit of an educational podcast because um, the thing with the Apollonian the Dionysian is the it's one of Nietzsche's ideas which is sort of most commonly known. I think a lot of people are familiar with it to some degree or another, but it's also, as is the case with an enormous amount of Nietzsche's work, it's also quite an abused concept or a misunderstood concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I want to try and clarify a few things uh, and, I don't know, distract you all from the horrors of um, the world that we're actually currently living in by talking about dead stop mentioning the horrors. <laughs> nothing but the horrors nothing but the horrors all right so the apollonian and the dionysian this um the the notion that there are these two great aesthetic forces um was developed in nietzsche's first book the birth of tragedy which we i believe mentioned uh in one of our earliest episodes as well that was uh, on shivers, weirdly, we talked about these uh, conflicting currents in European thought and how they how they manifested in the genre of um, body horror and Lovecraftian shit, um, which is something I'm, I think we're definitely going to be returning to uh, in this episode and others. So uh, on a uh, a historical note, I think, really, about um, the text itself, The Birth of Tragedy, it's not really representative of Nietzsche's mature philosophy. It was... um, There were obvious um, intimations of where his thought was going to go later on uh, running through it, but it's a text that is quite... (sighs) It stands somewhat on its own in many ways, and I think it's actually very fair to say in many ways it's not an especially good book. It's very dense. Um... It's uh, very dense, and it's very and it is frankly kind of repetitive. And uh, there is, in fact, the um, Nietzsche wrote uh, a preface ten years after the uh, the first publication called "An Attempt at a Self Criticism," where he acknowledges some of these problems, which I'm just going to read uh, an extract from. To say it once again, today I find it an impossible book. Badly written, clumsy and embarrassing. Its images frenzied and confused, sentimental, in some places saccharine sweet to the point of effeminacy, uneven in pace, lacking in any desire for logical purity, so sure of its convictions that it is above any need for proof and even suspicious of the propriety of proof. A book for initiates, music for those who have been baptised in the name of music and who are related from the, f- from the first by their common and rare experiences of art, a shibboleth for their cousins in Artibus, an arrogant and fanatical book that wished from the start to exclude the profanum vulgus of the educated even more than the people, but a book which, at its, as its impact has shown and continues to show, has a strange knack of seeking out its fellow revellers and enticing them on to new secret paths and dancing places. That was all one sentence, because Nietzsche did not believe in brevity. <laughs> Like, wait, so that that sort of, like, lack of brevity survived the translation? I, oh, God, you know, I, it's one of the many times I regret I don't speak German, but, um, maybe. But it, it was all one it, word in the German. <laughs> A hideous, yeah. ever-extending compound word, yeah. Uh, I mean, I believe it was, um, Umberto Eco in, um, Foucault's Pendulum, uh, where we get the line, and I'm gonna, um, uh, paraphrase this, that, uh, a great, a great artist um, destroys their juvenilia. A poor one um, tries to repackage and sell it, and an average one uh, just hides it away for, um, for keeping it as a kind of sentimental driving force, um, but never 
allows it to kind of reach the great the world at large. Um, and uh, regrettably, our, our boy um, Friedrich has uh, fallen into the lowest denominator of that triad. It's, um, but um, it's yeah, but Juvenalia it is, and it's like, hey, you can learn with me, <laughs> and we and we'll try. I remember yeah. I, on a, on a stylistic point about Nietzsche. Actually, I remember when I did my uh, undergraduate, uh, I was you know I, th- I think every philosophy program inevitably has the Nietzsche kid, and I was the Nietzsche kid, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I I remember just and I think this is quite a common experience of Nietzsche just being so swept away in his prose. But when um, for our episode with uh, Matt of uh, Xenogothic on Hannibal, I reread uh, the Antichrist. Uh, Nietzsche's text, uh, one of his, I think it might have been the last thing of his published, rather one of his last three texts, anyway. And I have to admit, I was I was quite glad to reach the end of that book. <laughs> I think I, I'd sort of, um, uh, I, 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 yeah, I've less patience with the um, with the in verbose intensity of Nietzsche's style than I think I used to have. I think I prefer things a little bit colder and calmer now in my old age. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Moving yeah, on. Uh, there is actually, could I possibly at this point interject with a what you know, I I think like let's get a brief summary because like I kind of have a quote that's quite pertinent that I think I feel like sums up very well um the kind of base level interpretation of um of of how the Dionysian uh relates to the Apolline or how it how it's distinct from the Apolline. Um which once we've got the definitions down, I think kind of it would be good to illustrate that because then much of the text is an articulation of how those currents kind of feed out into greater patterns in culture and stuff. But so what what are the what's the what's the foundational idea? Like what is what is the duality here we're looking at? If duality in it, in totality it may be. Well, I, th- I think we need to begin with um, the title of the book itself, "The Birth of Tragedy," because what Nietzsche is attempting to do is uh, account for the origin of tragic theatre in ancient Greece. And he identified um, tragic theatre in its most most sublime moments uh, with a synthesis of two opposing yet complementary elements, the Apollonian and the Dionysian, or the Apolline and the Dionysiac, as it's sometimes rendered. So Apollonian art is art in perhaps sort of a sense that we would be... um, a more traditional sense almost uh it is typically it is primarily visual art it is plastic constructive arts uh for and the one of the examples Nietzsche uses is it's the art of sculpture for the Greeks it's the idea that um it is art that is generated by placing limitations on something you know in the sculpture it the limitations are is the form that is placed upon the marble and generates the image through these impositions of boundaries. Uh, he also associates it with um, epic poetry. And um, I think that today we would perhaps associate it with um, literature of a particular kind, those sort of like grand, meticulously designed novels where everything hangs together just very neatly where everything kind of yeah whether you just get this web of connections and these that are born out of the artist's vision and out of the um the limitations and the restrictions that the artist has placed upon her work essentially yeah uh, i 
Um, I believe like kind of, I had a, a good analogy for that process, which is um, someone was asked to describe their task and their, their, their job was to um, carve ornamental lions. And um, the description they gave was, I chip away all the parts of the stone that aren't lion. Exactly, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, above all else, the Apollonian in this in the ancient Hellenic context for Nietzsche is the creation of beauty and it also has this, which we're going to dwell on a little bit later, it also has this illusory component to it because, well, the name Apolline, Apollonian, is derived from Apollo, who, and one of his patronages as a deity is dreams, and it is the out, and the idea is that the Apollonian art creates a beautiful thing for you to kind of, well, Nietzsche wouldn't say lose yourself in, but he's arguably a bit inconsistent on this, but somewhat to lose yourself in the contemplation of this beautiful thing, which you know is something that a person has made in order to be beautiful. It's a product, uh, it, it ultimately. It's something that has been produced. And, uh, and as well as that, it also embodies the illusion of um, the principium individuationis, or the principle of individuality, the idea that there are such things as solitary, isolated things that are that stand in and of themselves, by themselves, in their beauty, as it were. So the idea of the that, uh, to contemplate an ancient Greek statue, that we're contemplating something that is separate from everything else, something that is composed of its limitations. But this isn't really true, though. And we kind of know it's not true. We know that it doesn't exist in isolation. We know that the marble came from somewhere, and the marble itself is the product of geological forces and so on. We know that it's been brought here uh, and that it is displayed in a particular way for a particular purpose. But there still has this illusion of individuality to it, which kind of reinforces the illusion that we ourselves are isolated individuals, which we are not. So, mm -hmm. in contrast to that, and again, this is kind of a productive contrast, but there is still a contrast all the same, is the Dionysian. And Dionysian art, named for the god Dionysus, is a kind of raw experiential aesthetic, which is most, most closely related to the experience of music, of being swept up in music. The way that, um, unlike visual art, where, well, well, no, maybe not unlike visual art, really, because, you know, I'm not uncritical in this, but this is the idea that Nietzsche is presenting us. Uh, this notion that when we listen to music, or when we sing, we become sort of dissolved in the music in a way that we're not with the, when it comes to the contemplation of visual images. And so, and I think this is an experience which uh, a lot of people will be able to recognise quite, uh, quite, quite readily, the way that mm -hmm. you do get lost and swept up in a piece of music. And, yeah. um, Perhaps a really good example of that is the experience of just going to a really good gig where you lose <laughs> sense of time, you experience a kind of, this is the important thing, you experience a kind of disillusion, you lose a sense of yourself as an isolated subject and you become part of this collective revelry which we're all enjoying together and we're all experiencing together and in a sense our co-participation 
in this experience is what makes it real, that it isn't an isolated solitary thing, it isn't just a contemplation of a solitary object, it's this experience that we're all moving through together. Yeah, I, I think this is something that's going to be very important, I think, because um, I do definitely want, you know, we touched on this, I think, a bit in the Nosferatu episode when we were talking about F.W. Murnau and his kind of unique, uh, his distinctive I, philosophy, effectively, when it came to uh, studying and directing films. Um, there's a certain sense that, or there was kind of a certain sense held in certain critical circles that film existed as a unique medium because it transcended these kind of these boundaries of music, uh, static image, uh, moving image and stuff. And and so they occupied a unique kind of cognitive uh, territory for that. But yeah, this is something I want to kind of pick up at some point just because I, uh, when your description of music there, um, which I, I, you know, which Nietzsche does talk about in some great detail, um, is it, it, fig it figures into what is an ongoing tradition, which I need to actually kind of pin down and uh, codify to some extent. But I just remember, I think it was a quote actually from Goethe, but I might be wrong. It might even have been Nietzsche himself, where he described architecture as uh, the art form most um, closely aligned with music weirdly and it's like or, or it described it as being like it's like music frozen um which is yeah which is a, it's an interesting way of like thinking about these things but um this sense that there are there are these kind of different cognitive spaces that arts occupy i mean this is you know this is just kind of where we're going with that but i i have um i have a quote which i kind of um made sure to uh took well I, that i took note of um which i think is like one of my favorite descriptions that Nietzsche gives towards the um, the Dionysian, which I'm just going to read. He says, um, Now is the slave a free man. Now all the stubborn hostile barriers which necessity, caprice, or shameless fashion, quote, has set up between man and man are broken down. Now at the evangel of cosmic harmony, each one feels himself not only united, reconciled, blended with his neighbour, but as one with him, as if the veil of Maya had been torn and were now merely fluttering in tatters before the mysterious primordial unity. In song and dance, and just, just interjecting there, you know, that's, uh, if nothing else, like, exactly what you were talking about with that idea of going to a really great gig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in song and in dance, man exhibits himself as a member of a higher community, he has forgotten how to walk and speak, and is of the and is on the point of taking a dancing flight into the air. His gestures bespeak enchantment, even as the animals now talk and the earth yields milk and honey, so as something supernatural sounds forth from him. He feels himself a god. He himself now walks about the enchanted and he now he, he himself now walks about enchanted and elated, even of the gods whom he saw walking about in his dreams. Man is no longer an artist. He has become a work of art. The artistic power of all nature here reveals itself in the tremors and drunkenness to the highest gratification of the primordial unity. Which, you know, that's... I just think it's fantastic. <laughs> it is fantastic. Uh, and again, you can also sort of like tell him that, that Nietzsche would never use uh, one word when five would do. Um, yeah. So moving on a little bit, like, um, is one of the uh, art form of these two aesthetic covens is it's kind of like the, the, the cliff notes version and we do need to sort of go into a little bit more detail than that because uh like 
what I've presented is sort of how people most commonly sort of like think about it. That you know, Apolline art, Apollonian art, is cold constructed visual arts and Dionysian is uh, sort of like cool sexy musical art but it's a little bit weirder than that I guess kind of more interesting because something I've already sort of mentioned is that, that you know Apollo is a god of dreams and illusions and the reason why it's important to emphasize this illusory notion of Apollonian art and uh, Apollonian uh, beauty is because this isn't this it's almost as if what Nietzsche is kind of suggesting here and I think this is very very interesting is the notion that Apollonian art is kind of the ancient Greeks revenge against the natural world for not meeting the standard of beauty that they expected from it uh, that he suggests that the Greeks were a people who were unique in really grasping the fact that existence is basically terrible and but rather than so falling into that and to sort of disappearing into despair, they take their revenge on nature almost by saying, well, fine, then we will create something better than nature. And that is the Apollonian. And um, he, in fact, puts it uh, here. How does this folk wisdom, that is the wisdom that of... Actually, no, I'll start with the folk wisdom. That makes more sense. And in fact, this isn't the uh, one reading from here. It's actually um, Oedipus at Colonus by Sophocles. Um, I'm just reading a brief passage from this, which um, isn't the passage that Nietzsche actually quotes, but it says the same thing. Show me the man who asks an overabundant share of life, in love with more and ill content with less, and I will show you one in love with foolishness. In the accumulation of many years, pain is in plenty and joy not anywhere, when life is overspent, and at the last there is the same release when death appears, unheralded by music, dance or song, to give us peace. Say what you will, the greatest boon is not to be but life begun soonest to end is best and to that born from which our way began swiftly return the simple playtime the simple playtime of our youth behind what woe is absent what fierce agony strife and the bloody test of battle envy and hatred and at length unloved unkind unfriended age worst ill of all and and last consumes our strength so nietzsche is presenting that kind of extreme pessimism as the deep understanding the Greeks had about what life was actually like, that it's nasty, brutish and short, really, or yeah. if you're lucky, it's short. And so he presents the Apollonian as a response to that, saying, how does this folk wisdom relate to the Olympian world of the gods, as does the ecstatic vision of the tortured martyr to his torments, that it is out of this deep suffering that Apollonian beauty kind of explodes outwards and it ha because yeah. it has to because that is the the solution to it to mm -hmm. create this great aesthetic redemption of things so the uh, so the apollonian is this is almost the revenge of culture on nature but the dionysian then gives it's sort of as if the dionysian gives voice to the kind of like terrible prime primeval creative destruction destructive sheer becomingness of being which is a weird way of saying anything at all but the idea but you have the apollonian as this art of the the vengeance of beauty on the natural world but the dionysian is more the recognition of the truth of the natural world and the expression of that in this overwhelming intoxicating um 
ecstatic form of art in Mm. the revelries of music Um, and especially the idea that when we sort of drink in the Dionysian and own that and dissolve ourselves into it that's kind of recognizing the truth of things that we are actually just we are products of the whims of nature but it's almost taking a kind of like a joyous participation in that in the way that things simply come to be and then cease to be Mm -hmm. and i think it's very much worth um just kind of putting this in both a literary con well both for for nietzsche a literary and and kind of historic uh you know um critical context and for the greeks uh specific we're not just i i keep we keep saying the greeks but we're really wanting to say the athenians yes um this is attic tragedy yeah uh for the um uh, putting those in a historical context because um as much as it is a um a treatise on purely kind of artistic traditions and uh the kind of philosophical dimensions of that it is also you know, uh, I'm talking about the birth of tragedy, very much a sociological study and a historical study. And his objective is to, and this is something we're going to come back to a lot throughout the episode, to just identify why it is that the Greeks have such a distinctive and unique place in culture and history, why they've always been, I think the analogy he uses is being like the charioteer that drives the uh, the chariot of all culture. Why is it their hands at the reins even uh, centuries after their, um, you know, the, 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 the fading of that golden age that he's talking about? And it is a very specific golden age that kind of set the tone for um, for this this tradition and um you know i think kind of yeah that you know because we talk about the greeks a lot you know they have this kind of lofty place in the european mindset um but the the term he uses is to describe um a nation among nations as a genius among the masses basically his whole thing is why are the Greeks so good? Why, 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 why was Athens for this period of a couple hundred years and very not really very much longer than that um, in, his, in most popular estimation, why was this so damn special? Why were they so good? And I think um, the point you talk about suffering, the point about darkness and despair and terror um, is what this kind of, what we think of as the golden age of Athenian Greekness. It's what it was born out of. Uh, just to put a bit into a timeline. So we we know about the, um, the Greco-Persian Wars and very often in the popular imaginary in films like 300, um, they're seen as like, you know, well, they're a fucking great laugh. Um, you know, didn't we, didn't we beat their asses, you know, the Persians and stuff, wasn't it? Wasn't it great how we lost so few of our own kind of thing? But it's like, this was a period of massive like humanitarian disaster and 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 like national trauma for all of the um the hellenic um the the hellenic world you know it's like a source you know the pop you know frank miller doesn't dwell much on the fact that like athens was captured and destroyed by the persians and that um the parthenon as we know it now was literally torn down and the one, the one that we see now was rebuilt and you know um it was a massive period of uncertainty like the entire concept of the athenians the entire city-state took to boats and fled and existed <laughs> as a kind of phantom uh semi-existent city-state 
on the Aegean Sea. You know, these were extreme times and um, and what the kind of what we really think of as the golden age of ancient Greece, all the kind of culture and philosophy and ideas that were born out of that, were what followed um, that period of trauma. Um, and I think it's also kind of just worth thinking about, <laughs> I think I had like a long suspended point that I never really got up to about like the, the theater of Dionysius in, um, in our Hannibal episode, but I'm gonna do some version of it now. But, um, but the, just, a, just a bit of a timeline, because I think this is important. So um, the, the kind of core figures that we think of as a, an emblematic of, um, of Greek greatness, of Athenian greatness, are the three most notable um, playwrights of um, of the theatre of Dionysus, uh, which were um, Aeschylus, um, Sophocles, and no, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, and then um, and then it was. Um, uh, Aristophanes, who was the largely kind of satirical one, who followed after that, and there's this kind of timeline that like we had the great developments in the dramatic dimension, and then like the last most um, sort of self-aware uh, and most critical version of that being between Euripides and so and Aristophanes were contemporaneous with Socrates, and then we have the three generations of like philosopher which are the three, the big three, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And so just that timeline basically marks out kind of what the, the era the, um, of greatness that Nietzsche is talking about. And both these figures kind of loom large in the kind of the development and maturation of, um, of Athenian culture. Um, and part of his sociological study, part of why he... Um, drew this identi or identified this current as to why uh, the great why Greek the Athenians during this time were able to achieve such greatness was a um, it was a kind of very much to do with the incorporation of um, the divine and the basically kind of like it, he identified kind of two drives within the Athenian people which were a um, a kind of inherent critical dimension present in their religious practice because one of the things that we we've kind of um by do by focusing on the apollonian and the Dionysiac as critical concepts we really need to you know we 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 are in danger of overlooking the fact that in these are both gods and both practices of art in this respect were forms of worship of these gods and um whether it be to kind of like to channel some element of the gods but to become the artist to become and follow the model of apollo or to walk among the gods as dionysius those are both forms of worship and it was the fact that the, this was the kind of state worship this was so inherent in the culture so ingrained that the greeks were able to achieve such greatness and that is kind of where he's that's the ultimate kind of well, the ultimate objective is to say, like, how can we get that again, and how can we make it German? But that's kind of the—that's <laughs> the raison d'être of the um, of the text of uh, of of the birth of tragedy. That is the birth of tragedy. Yes, and there's a very there's a very uh, good and uh, yeah, salient points to make. And one thing that um, I think is worth mentioning uh, what, what you're saying there about uh, well, there's two points I want to make actually. 
Um, one is the notion that of, of a great uh, artistic revival uh, of a, or great cultural revival following a period of um, military strife is something that um, Nietzsche would repeat in uh, The Twilight of the Idols because mm-hmm. um, you know, Nietzsche famously had a, a great deal of well, the, the mature Nietzsche, not the Nietzsche of the birth of tragedy, had a great deal of disdain for German culture and especially for German nationalism and he compares uh, the Germany of the new victorious Bismarckian Reich following the Franco-Prussian War with um, the defeated France and saying that France, which suffered this great calamity, this defeat, is a more culturally and scientifically healthy and curious nation than Germany is as a result of its defeat. and this is something that uh, you know, we, and you know, uh, it said this is the same thing that inspires the Frankfurt School: the fact that um, the revolution doesn't come, that you have the great calamity of the First World War, meaning that um, social theory, that Marxism, Marxist theory, has to fall back in on itself and engage in this radical period of self-reflection and self-criticism to figure out what's gone wrong here and from that you get this uh, explosion of whole new ways of uh, thinking about culture and history and the same thing and you can say the same thing happens with the greeks that you get this revival of religious art coming out of that and sec- and um, secondly just an interest is inter- you're talking about sort of like the brevity of this period relatively but it doesn't actually stretch over an enormous period of history really yeah it's like for Nietzsche this is actually kind of um, contracted even more so because when it comes like the three the three great tragedians um, Aeschylus um, Sophocles and Euripides Nietzsche kind of thinks that it was already degenerating with Sophocles that uh, that Aeschylus is when it is it's most perfect and sublime. When you get yeah. to Sophocles, that's when he he suggests that that's when sort of like the decline has actually already begun, even with Sophocles, because, and he yeah. has nothing but contempt for Euripides, uh, especially mm. because Euripides includes people who aren't nobles. <laughs> Weirdly, uh, Aristophanes, that kind of uh, figure who was the one mainly contemporaneous with uh, Socrates, and I think Socrates actually features as a character in one of his plays. Yes, um, I've not, I've not read, um, I've not read it, but I, th- I forget which play it is. But there's is it what the it's, frogs it is or... the frogs. Yeah, it's a parody yeah. of of Socrates, where he's like contemplating uh, the propulsion of a gnat saintness and stuff like that. Mm. It's yeah, yeah, but the uh, the the the. But the question, well, not question, but um, the observation about that is like I forget which play by Aristophanes it was, but um, one of the interesting things is that one of his plays is about um, essentially organizing, like resurrecting the dead playwrights to have like a sh- a, a, a dramatic, sh- a theatrical showdown <laughs> to see which one is the best. And kind I think of epic he- rap battle in history. Yeah, yeah, totally, uh, and. Um, Oh god! <laughs> there needs to be one of those like horrible YouTube videos about that, but, <laughs> by that kind of like libertarian guy. Who, but um, there was um, yeah, and it's in that that he kind of like he says like, oh yeah, by the way, Aeschylus wins, and it's because I think it's like the the reasoning he locates as being largely to do with um, with the with the fact that um, it's the he's the one that's most re- reverent. It's the one for whom. Um, the theatre of Dionysius as religious practice 
is uh, the most serious, and then Sophocles and Euripides become both a bit too self-aware and a bit too postmodern. In, um, <laughs> in as like someone as as many YouTubers might argue, based on a limited understanding of how postmodernism works. But it's anyway. interesting. It's interesting as well that one of the things that um, Nietzsche specifically objects to in the development of later tragedy is he he he, he suggests that it becomes a little bit too well that, that you were saying sort of too self-aware or too clever like he mm -hmm. sort of objects to things happening for reasons now where yeah. precisely what he what, like the power of the Dionysian is the fact that it just does its own thing and it doesn't need to appeal to reason because it's this primordial material of, of this primordial material of nature sort of ever becoming just sort of launching itself into uh, our into our world and just doing it doing as doing as it pleases and mm -hmm. but specifically what happens with the great tragedies is you get a synthesis of these two uh, aesthetic modes um, work kind of working together with each other and I've got another quote so we have a lengthy quote here actually but um, the tragic cannot be honestly inferred from the nature of art as it is conventionally conceived according to the single category of illusion and beauty. Only from the spirit of music can we understand delight in the destruction of the individual. For only in single instances of such destruction can we clearly see the eternal phenomenon of Dionysiac art, which expresses the will in its omnipotence behind the Principium Individuationis, the eternal life that lies behind the phenomenal world, regardless of all destruction. Yep. Metaphysical Hello? delight in the tragic is a translation of the image. The hero, the supreme manifestation of the will, is negated oh, to our gratification. The tragic cannot be honestly inferred from the nature of art as it is conventionally conceived according to the single category of illusion and beauty. Only from the spirit of music can we understand delight in the destruction of the individual. For only in single instances of such destruction can we clearly see the eternal phenomenon of Dionysiac art, which expresses the will in its omnipotence behind the Principium Individuationis, the eternal life that lies behind the phenomenal world regardless of all destruction. Metaphysical delight in the tragic is a translation of the image. The hero, the supreme manifestation of the will, is negated to our gratification because he is only a phenomenon, and the eternal life of the will is left untouched by his destruction. We believe in eternal life is tragedy's cry, while music is the immediate idea of that life. The purpose of the plastic arts is quite different. Here Apollo overcomes the suffering of the individual by means of the luminescent glorification of the eternity of the phenomenon. Beauty triumphs over the suffering inherent in life. Pain is, in a certain sense, deluded away from amongst the features of nature. In Dionysiac art and its tragic symbolism, the same nature addresses us with its true undisguised voice. Be like me, the primal mother, eternally creative, eternally impelling into life, eternally drawing satisfaction from the ceaseless flux of phenomena. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. uh, and just moving this section to its uh, wrap-up, because I know, Lucy, there are things that you want to uh, bring up. Uh, well, just, but, just, but, just, but, like, namely the main bit of the episode, but yeah. Yes, but yeah, just, <laughs> just want to rush through. She just want to rush through very, very quickly. And this is just, again, correcting one of those 
commonly repeated errors that you sometimes hear. When it comes to modern culture, Nietzsche does not think the problem is that it is too Apollonian. He doesn't think it's either Apollonian nor Dionysian. He thinks it's Socratic. He thinks that, and by which, because for him, Socrates is Socrates is decline. Really, that is the like the precipitous collapse because Socrates for Nietzsche wants it all to make sense but what tragic theatre expresses in the synthesis between beautiful illusion and Dionysiac reality is that it doesn't make sense because it's all basically terrible uh, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have a purpose behind it it's just the, ce- the ceaselessness of sheer becoming and for Nietzsche Socrates with the uh, the Socratic worldview suggests that the world is in fact comprehensible it is knowable and known more than that and he thinks that what we've ended up with in modern culture by which i mean 19th century german culture uh <laughs> is is a socratic culture which is a kind of bastardized apollonianism where and what he is kind of expecting and thinks that we're going to get and infamously thought that we were going to get through the operas of Richard Wagner was the uh, the resurrection of both deities together which would be the great overcoming of the illusions the uh, of the destructive illusions rather than the health-giving illusions of Apollo the destructive illusions of Socrates and then everything would be great and it, that part of his philosophy aged very very badly and you know one of the most famous things about Nietzsche is you know, his his bitter breakup with uh, <laughs> Wagner um due to Wagner going from being this great you know in Nietzsche's eyes going from this great artist who really profoundly understands the heart of being the heart of suffering and he converts to Christianity and becomes uh, a vicious anti-semite and a German nationalist I am so through with you Richard <laughs> Yeah, but, but I mean, basically, while for Nietzsche, the main problems in society lay in um, kind of a, a bastardized union of Socratic philosophy and, Christ- and Judeo-Christian values, now it's because of phones and bitches be shopping. And that's why tonight we're going to be talking about death in <laughs> No, that's a bad <laughs> <laughs> No, we're using that. That's the only take we're using. <laughs> Great. Okay. <laughs> One moment. Yes, Mr. Rashomon. Can you tell me why there is nothing in any of the newspapers about what is happening here? Even I have heard stories. Ah, so. <laughs> you have heard those extravagant rumors too. No, believe me, sir. There is no evidence. Not even sickness. What about the notices? Death in Venice details the final weeks in the life of the aging thinker Gustav von Aschenbach. An intellectual and artist of national renown, he finds himself assailed by intellectual and spiritual uncertainty, combined with an intense, restless longing for strange and unfamiliar things. Departing from his staid ascetic life in southern Germany, he takes a trip to Venice with the ambiguous aim of resting his mind and reconnecting with the beauty and wonders of the classical and renaissance culture that the city represents for him. Yet his experience goes far beyond his expectations, and he becomes obsessed and overwhelmed by the heady atmosphere of life and mystery of that Mediterranean city. And at the height of this unbalanced state, he develops an infatuation with a beautiful Polish boy of 14 named Tadzio. 
And despite willing himself to leave, he follows the boy for several days, all the while ignoring an outbreak of cholera beginning to overtake the city. After contracting the virus himself, he eventually dies from fever while sitting in a deck chair on the beach as Tadzio plays in the surf before him as the Venetian sun sets over Venice. A Venetian sunset over Venice. Beautiful. Beautiful. Right. Well, oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> so, this t- so this is so much episode to do. Still. This is so um, much episode to do. So, Death in Venice. Uh, it yeah. is. So, we're just gonna. I'm just gonna say it like right now because the thing that we need to address right away is Death in Venice is widely regarded as one of the uh, first and one of the most important uh, queer texts in modern European literature, mm. and it is also deeply problematic as it is about uh, an old man who falls in love with a with a child yeah uh, we're, so, we're gonna be go- doing a lot of caveats and like fucking drowning in caveats yeah um, this isn't our hard pivot to nambler or anything like that as a podcast i promise yeah i mean it's like so again again with um like this isn't even part of queer season anymore but like whenever we talk about like queer themes and film we're, we want to start we want to be all like yeah let's get gay and then suddenly it's like no painful difficult here we go <laughs> all this shit whether it be racism serial killing or in this case pederasty but these are questions we need to have and this is in the actual classical Nietzschean definition a safe space where like ideas can be discussed without you know with freely and without fear of censure or bad faith argument, neither of which we're going to be exercising in this, in this, in this recording. Please don't cancel us. We're not going to be cancelled. Fine. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I figured, like, with that heavy, massive, flagged-up caveat out of the way, I felt that it would be a good point to state that you know we're going to be talking not just. I mean, you mentioned this was a work of literature. Um, we're talking about both um, Death in Venice, Thomas Mann's novella of 1912, but also um, Lucino Visconti's uh, film of 1973? Maybe. Is it 1970 film. on the dot? It's 1971. Huh? I think I might be getting it mixed up with Death in Venice with uh, Don't Look Now, which was also... Wait... Now that was 1973. So yeah, yeah. So I am mixing up with Don't Look Now. Um, but yeah, basically, um, there are some very distinct things about this. I think in the book, they don't even name the illness. Like I, I've been referring to it internally as it was typhoid. Um, it's whereas yeah, it's, I think it's quite explicitly cholera in the film. Yes, it's 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 just simply it's a pestilence. Yes. Uh, also, yeah. the other adaptation that we will be making a passing reference to is Benjamin Britten's opera of Death yeah. and Venice. I think uh, I'm just gonna, gonna like bring it up there as well. Like, um, it could be argued that like um, we've both read off Thucydides. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Looks that. nervously. Yeah, you know, like, the the bit where, like, the Spartans, uh, well, I think it's just before the kind of, the, the Spartans advance on Athens, um, there is a massive, like, plague, or just nos, 
that assails the city. And I don't think it was ever like properly figured out what that was, but that was seen as something that was this great kind of like perilous point of destruction for classical Hellenic culture. And maybe Thomas Mann might have been doing a like tipping his hat a little bit towards uh, Thucydides <laughs> there. But um, but you know that that's speculation. But there are some things. But there um, I think kind of the epidemiological epidemiological analysis of the film might be distracting us uh, and over lengthening the episode more than we already have, which is a lot. <laughs> um, and so, like the main difference, the main key point is the fact that um, in the book. Um, the aging thinker Gustav von Aschenbach, uh, played by Dirk Dirk Bogard in the film, he is, in the book, he is, like, he's like a philosopher, he's like kind of an essayist. He's he's a writer, broadly so construed. I think he's he's a novelist uh, and a respected man of letters. Yes. Um, And, yeah, and, like, one of his, uh, one of his uh, kind of, like, key points is that he is uh, very clearly a um, he is very much on the his characterization is very much of the apple line which is something we're going to be breaking down quite a lot over the course of this episode um, but one of the things that um, that is um, key to this is that in the film he is uh, transformed into a composer and I figured like kind of I thought one of the main things that, well, two kind of like most obvious things, I think, um, that come up and, you know, that lie behind this reasoning, which I thought, you know, before I started researching for this episode, uh, are the fact that it's much easier to depict a composer on screen because you can see, show him doing music or composing or playing music. The or, music in yeah. the film, incidentally, which they use as like, as Aschenbach's is uh, Gustav, is, uh, is, um, is it Gustav Mahler? It oh, is no, Gustav Mahler. Mahler. It is yeah. Gust- his name is Gustav, isn't it? Because yeah, uh, it yeah, is I just, Gustav Mahler. Yeah, Gustav Mahler. And I just wanted to say I don't know anything about um, classical music, um, but I like doing research for this episode. Got me listening to Mahler. It's very good. Would hmm. recommend a solid seven out of ten. I'm quite fond of Benjamin Britten. He gets fucking weird. Yeah, um, I listened. Yeah. To, I only got round to listening to the opera on Monday, actually. We're recording on the Saturday, and. Um, great <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was like bizarre kind of like he was like a modernist he was quite avant-garde you know um but yeah one of the key things in that is so that's like the initial the initial impression i thought for a while he was actually trying to kind of equate the character more with um marla but one of the things that kind of came up when i was looking at this and well doing my background reading is the fact that it may have been the case that Visconti was trying to thematically incorporate two adaptations into the film of Death in Venice. One being the original source material of Death in Venice, and a later one uh, being a, um, a novel of, I believe, like 1947, so significantly later in Thomas Mann's career, um, which is his version of Dr. Faustus, or, uh, yeah, that's called... I think it's either... I can't remember if it's Faust or Doctor... I think it is Doctor Faustus. Um, But the key point that's made there is that, you know, Faustus in Thomas Mann's version is a composer. And a lot of the ideas that kind of drive the plot of of Doctor Faustus in the same way that the Nietzschean idea... the Nietzschean parallel of the the Apolline and the Dionysian uh, uh, represent for Death in Venice is... um, 
is identifying the kind of creative process with the Faustian pact and the Faust, you know, the Faustian bargain. But um, in the same way that De um, Birth of Tragedy represents for Nietzsche what is essentially his juvenalia, I believe in a similar sense for, for Thomas Mann, uh, Death in Venice is his juvenalia. And um, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna look up how old he was when he wrote it because I'll just become depressed. But, um, but in many ways, the um, in many ways, uh, Doctor Faustus was a um, was a kind of like a a development and indeed a maturation of these ideas. Um, you know, in the in the like kind of the mature Thomas Mann rep is echoing to some extent the more mature Nietzsche, but. One of the key things that's between these two texts is obviously the First World War, but also crucially the Frankfurt School. Um, and one of the figures who, in this period of Thomas Mann's writing career, has, has sprung up and become eerily prominent is one uh, Theodore Adorno, uh, <gasps> who was very, very significant, both retroactively towards Death in Venice, uh, the novel and um, contemporaneously with Dr. Faustus. And there's actually um, a long tradition, well, a, a number of scholarly studies identifying the Mephisto, the Mephistopheles figure in, um, in Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus explicitly with Theodore Adorno. Um, <laughs> and because um, he, he comes up as a kind of adversarial figure to, um, in terms of musical or philosophy around music to the, um, I guess, the Thomas Mann figure as represented by um, Dr. Faustus, because both of these novels, crucially, are self-based. You know, that's one thing that, um, oh, reflecting yes. that caveat you gave earlier, like, Thomas Mann literally did go to Venice and fall in love with a boy who was actually 13. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but I, yeah. I, I, uh, like, I think there's a moment of horrible dark comedy about this, that what we know about that from his wife. And I just have this image, <laughs> sorry, I just have this image in my head of the long, long suffering Frau man just saying, yes, yes, we did have a lovely holiday in Venice that year when my husband spotted that boy. It was a lovely yeah. trip he took me on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we're talking about like kind of music and um, youth and Venice, a lot of things that like came up for me strikingly, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think we we have license to because it's been a heavy episode so far. It was like I did actually get taken by my family to Venice at the age of fourteen, but um, musically, my kind of mental equation with that place is the fact that I bought a copy of. Um, in the airport, well, I, I didn't buy, I had bought for me a copy of Pantera's Cowboys from Hell and <laughs> spent the entire Venice trip walking around listening to Pantera's Cowboys from Hell. And um, so just like all these kind of like sweeping scenes of, you know, the Bridge of Sighs, the great palazzos, the mysterious um, churches and reliquies are all just like... <laughs> come and chew with the cowboys from hell you <laughs> were taken over this town um so that's that's a bit of like my kind of like trash mental landscape of europe that <laughs> is getting no better even as i enter into uh nascent middle age but you could also uh, say about our cowboys from hell is tipping our hats to a potential future episode maybe theodore adorno was the original cowboy from hell I mean, maybe in many ways we're both cow folk from hell really mm. 
But um, but yeah, so um, Theodore Adorno, one of the things that's kind of crucial in, in this is the fact that his um, his attitudes to music, which um, were later picked up by actually Frederick Jameson when he was writing... Uh, when he was writing his earlier stuff about postmodernism or postmodernity, as his was with the preferred iterate, you know, preferred variation, and the uh, cultural logic of late capitalism, he draws on Theodore Adorno uh, in a quote that I'm going to read, followed by a quote from Theodore Adorno. So, um, yeah, so strap in. But yeah, Frederick Jameson on the subject writes uh, the disappearance of the individual subject, along with its formal consequence, uh, the the increasing unavailability of the personal style, engender the well-nigh universal practice today of what we what may be called pastiche, the concept which we owe to Thomas Mann (brackets in Dr. Faustus), who owed it in turn to Adorno's great work on the two paths of advanced musical experimentation uh, (brackets Schoenberg's innovative pl- planification and Stravinsky's irrational eclecticism) uh, is to be shot distinguished from the more readily received idea of parody um so that's yeah so that's kind of like that's the that's kind of like the more developed form of the apolline and the dionysian present in in dr faustus um which i think is reflected in i'm I'm probably going to like drop in the quotes from the film but there are some like we were both remarking on this when we like reviewed the notes like some of the scenes in Death in Venice are completely insane. Like, um, like we've had some pretty heated ar- not arguments as such, but we've had like we've had disagreements, and um, you know we've we've sort of like we've been like, oh, I, I don't think you're right there. I think that's I, I think you're in error there. I think this is a you're over elaborating on this point. And some of these um, some of these like residual tensions have crept into the podcast for the more astute listeners. But I don't think we've ever like gotten to the point of like slamming a piano or in our case slamming on a dvd and saying you know like your criticism is stillborn um (laughs) yours is like a dead zombie form of critique that you know can only exist in a kind of death space of the human soul which affects nothing and is horrid and and ghastly and uncanny anywhere you like you have before you an entire series of mathematical combinations, unforeseen and inexhaustible. A paradise of double meanings in which you, more than anyone else, romp and roll about like a, like a, like a calf in clover. But you hear it. Do you recognize it? Oh, stop, 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 your music! But, like, just these... These the the, the 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 frantic bizarre debates of um of uh, Gustav von Aschenbach and his mate who kind of is like who is like a devil figure he is a tormentor he, you know even at his moment of great you know because one of the one of the key things actually in the film that's a that's a different you know a differentiating point is the fact that um he's not just stricken with wanderlust in the film he's fleeing he's go he's going into convalescence because he's had a profound mental breakdown brought about by a great artistic failure which was like his last opera being very very poorly received and <laughs> just, just imagine <laughs> like we don't see it we're just imagining a riot breaking up because of a disappointing opera <laughs> we're very disappointed with your latest opera oh um, god i must flee to venice <laughs> 
Yeah, and so he goes to Venice to recuperate and just, you know, think about his first principles and stuff. But it's like, it's during that scene that his mate just breaks into his dressing room when he's like, no, please send them away. That People are literally breaking down the doors to kill him because they're so disappointed with his <laughs> opera. And he makes it in and just screams at him, just like incredible abuses, uh, while he and his wife are telling him to go because he's suffering so horribly. And, like, it's... It's a very kind of like people talk about it as this like great austere film, but that's a completely fucking bizarre thing, and I I, I didn't realize I felt so strongly about it until I just brought it up. But um, <laughs> but anyway, um, the devil figure, the tormentor figure, represented by his quote unquote friend, and maybe sometime like uh, collaborator or whatever. Uh, I think that is a character based on Theodora Adorno, um, and the in the way that, you know, we've talked about Aschenbach, it goes back to the original source material that Aschenbach is the Apolline, but um, the kind of a, a variation on the Dionysian is introduced by this kind of Adorno-type figure. And I'm just going to read, like, um, I didn't want to get too bogged down in kind of researching the background of Adorno, but I have found perhaps the most succinct quote, and I'm hoping it's the most succinct because I found it on Wikipedia, but... Um, <laughs> The quote from Adorno, talking about the historical progress um, achieved by composers uh, who, uh, it, yeah, the historical progress is only achieved by the composer who, quote, submits to the work and seemingly does not undertake anything active except to follow where it leads, because historical experience and social relations are embedded within this musical material. It is to the analysis of such material that the critic must turn. In the face of this rational liberation from the musical material, Adorno um, Adorno came to criticise those who, like Stravinsky, withdrew from this freedom by taking recourse to forms of the past, as well as those who turned 12-tone composition into a technique which dictated the rules of the composition. Uh, and this, yeah, this sounds eerily like a variation on the Dionysian, but like the um, the distinction, yeah, we got there is kind of um, uh, Stravinsky's irrational eclecticism um, being the Dionysian, Schoenberg being the Apolline with his innovative planification in Frederick Jameson's terms. Wisdom, human dignity. Yes. <laughs> what use are they? Genius is a divine gift. No, no, no. A divine affliction. A sinful, morbid flashfire of natural gifts. I reject, I reject the demonic virtues of art. And you are wrong. Evil is a necessity. It is, it is the food of genius. <laughs> <clears throat> One thing that's interesting is he did, um, re Thomas Mann did manage to posthumously upset Roger Scruton, so props to that. The Yay. fucking. Yay. <laughs> um, point of question, because I think uh, you may have read the book actually more recently than I did, but um, does Ashenbach have like a wife and daughter in the text? That I recall. You say, well, you say I read it more recently than you. And like, I read it last year when we first said, oh yeah, let's definitely do Death in Venice next. <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> I believe he is either a widow or a bachelor in the novel. Mm -hmm. Right, so that is that is an invention on Visconti's part. Yes. But yeah, so... Um, yeah, so that's... That's interesting as well, like... So, so yeah. So Google that, actually, like... Wait a minute. Widowed at a young age, there we go. Okay. Oh, interestingly, at a young age, huh? Yes. Cool. So, Probably should have um, read the book again before we did this, but who has the time? 
when I used to be like ridiculously like I guess undistracted by the the woes and depredations degradations of adulthood I read it in a day and I believe I repeated that again like a year later and now it's just kind of like I think the most recent my most recent reading was over a series of commutes what a sad thing the world is yes yeah but you um, remember commuting I remember but you know commuting. what's you know what is fun the Greeks well, the Greeks are fun yes yeah. Yes, now we're on the part of the podcast where I talk about the ancient Greeks and more. Yeah. Everyone's favourite part of the we podcast. We didn't do enough of that before the synopsis. Yes, but now even more. Though this will be shorter because it's a bit more boring. Um, mm-hmm. So, because this is again sort of like um, trying to sort of like do a deep dive into the text itself and sort of uh, and extract the concept the themes moving through it and um it's um and it's one of those texts that's kind of like full of classical allusions and um i one of the things that is definitely happening happening in this book and we will actually get onto what's happening with the with the apollonian the dionysian at some point but when the, but one of the other things that's happening through this book is it's not like actually you know i'm just going to repeat what we said with donnie darko actually but 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 there isn't a special magic key that unlocks all of the meanings of the text these are things that are moving through it and some of them are definitely kind of in tension with each other i think the nietzschean stuff is sort of uh working against or not working against but it's kind of there is a co- there is a struggle going on there in the text mm. because we do also have these platonic socratic ideas happening here um specifically about the nature of love and beauty yeah so I mean, um i was gonna say like i mean just like maybe yes or no answer at this point do you find that thomas mann's text is a um dramatization of the apolline and the dionysian or an inherent critique thereof I think it's both. Um, I Great. think <laughs> I think it's dramatized. I think it is definitely dramatizing that great struggle, um, whilst also perhaps subverting it in some ways. But um, by which I mean, so the so Plato, uh, the divine Plato, 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 Plato. So there are two texts I'm going to like be referring to here, and I was going to do some quotes from them. Am I going to still do some quotes? I read a lot of Nietzsche. Well, I'll see where the spirit takes me. See where, so see the, where it goes. I've got a quote I want to stick in here at one point, which I think so illustrates there's, that. There's two yeah. texts here. So there's uh, Phaedrus and Symposium, the ones I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> so uh, Phaedrus is uh, is uh, it's a co- it's a dialogue between Socrates and uh, the young boy Phaedrus. Um, Actually, I actually work with someone called Phaedrus, and it just is kind of like he's the only Phaedrus I've ever met, and that's just kind of funny. That I was also like read this, like I actually showed it to him. So I almost I'm reading a book that's kind of that's named after you, and he said, "Oh, so you are." A uh, class, a fantastic uh, Tangerine Dream album, which I believe is actually called Fidra, which is the uh, feminine it's called, variant on that. It's name. called Fidra, yeah, because yeah. Uh, our friend Nesta. Uh, his sister was named Phaedra apparently huh. after the Tangerine, uh, Dream, Tangerine Dream album so there you go but they both have like neoclassical names those guys Nesta is Bob Marley's middle name oh, no way because it's I also think. like the, uh, I just the complete, old kind of, have I just completely the misremembered the, the fact about um, no no I think it is yeah, yeah um, it is, yeah, it is yeah. yeah. so yeah. yeah I think it's like kind of like um, 
kind of Afro-Caribbean names tend to have a lot of like classical Greek uh, presence because like you know this, isn't it the guy who's supposed to be Jamaican in Futurama is called Hermes he is yes yeah this is completely tangential to talk about people we know you don't know these people listeners I'm very sorry um, unless you do because Nestor several of our fantastic <laughs> pianist <laughs> several of our friends do listen to this podcast and indeed hey, I Nesta. Pe- hello Nesta you might be listening to this I don't know but people you know will be listening to it um, I don't know if Feedras from work will listen to it or not if you are hello I'm very sorry uh, it's surviving <laughs> members of Tangerine Dream maybe all of them I don't know no, they're dead. They're all dead, oh. aren't they? It doesn't yeah. exist anymore. I think they all died. Shit. Yeah. Fuck. Well, wasn't it just like basically one guy? No, the... I, I saw their perform. I didn't see it. I've seen videos <laughs> of their performance at Coventry Cathedral, and there's at least two. <laughs> I look at this. Plato. No, I, I have to know now. Tangerine Dream. <laughs> oh my god. Probably like oh, like host of loads of them. The best known lineup was its mid. The group has seen many changes over the years, with Frosa having been the only continuous member until his death in January two thousand and fifteen. Right. Despite that, they have released music as recently as twenty seventeen. So there you go. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's we're an hour. We're an hour and a quarter into this, and as you might have heard, as you probably have picked up by now, we're recording. Obviously, we're not recording together because of the coronavirus, so we're both recording this from our bedrooms remotely. We can't. We can't really and, like uh, have that kind of sympathetic sense of urgency that drives us to make things more succinct. I also, uh, again, like a lesson that we learned very, very hard on our second episode of this podcast was you should never podcast sober, and of course, this is still two weeks away from. Easter Sunday, so I still can't drink. So it's just all the more stress, all yeah, the more stress like, laying on me. I've had a couple of brews, but like I wasn't able to. I was really not even able to pick up that much because it was like the sh- you know the bit bo- the booze shelves on um the Sainsbury's I go to were like pretty pretty sparse. I bought a, a bottle of uh, whiskey today just to prepare for yeah. sun for prepare for Easter. Plato. Okay, yeah. right, Plato. So, for Plato in the Phaedrus, the beautiful is that which calls our souls out from the abyss of the realm of becoming into which they have fallen and encourages them to rise up again into the realms of eternity. Uh, I do have a quote here. I'm going to look up how succinct it is because I've forgotten if it's quite long or not. Hold on. It is... Yeah, just gonna, oh, I'll just read it, actually. Cool. Uh, now, the region above the heavens has never been celebrated as it deserves to be by any earthly poet, nor will it ever be. But it is like this, for one must be bold enough to say what is true, especially when speaking about truth. This region is occupied by being which really is, which is without colour or shape, intangible, observable by the steersman of the soul alone, by intellect, and to which the class of true knowledge relates. Thus, because the mind of a god is nourished by intellect and knowledge unmixed, and so too that of every soul which is concerned to receive what is appropriate to it, it is glad at last to see what is true and is nourished and made happy by gazing on what is true, until the revolution of the whole brings it around in a circle to the same point. 
In its circuit, it sees justice itself, sees self-control, sees knowledge, not that knowledge to which coming into being attaches, nor the knowledge that strangely differs in different items among the things that we now say are, but that which is in what really is, and but that which is in what really is, and which is really knowledge. And having feasted its gaze in the same way on the other things that really are, it descends back into the region within the heavens and goes home, where it arrives there the charioteer stations his horses at their manger, throwing them ambrosia and giving them nectar to drink down with the ambrosia. Um, it's crazy, man. Did you ever try DMT? <laughs> um, by which I mean, for Plato, there is the, the, the physical, material world of coming into being and falling out of being, uh, and there is also the true reality, which is of the knowledge of things as they are in themselves. So rather than... And, and the role of the philosopher for Plato is to move... Uh, well, for Plato himself, uh, move himself away from contemplating particular instances of universals and to instead contemplate the things in themselves. So rather than contemplating which individual people are just, to contemplate justice in itself. And only through this contemplation of the figure itself can we actually understand the individual instances of it as well. And for Plato in the Phaedrus, what happens, we are, because we have lost that knowledge of things as they really are, because we become trapped in this lower realm, um, the thing that calls us to most readily, that calls us to the contemplation of things as they really are and kind of enlivens our souls in this kind of recollection of what we experienced before we fell into this realm, is when we encounter someone who is beautiful. That This provides us with a great kind of metaphysical stirring that calls us out of ourselves and reminds us of what it was of the beauty that we saw when we contemplated beauty as such. And for Plato and for Socrates, because it's ancient Greece, the most beautiful person you can ever see is a boy, is an adolescent, specifically an adolescent boy. And it is, but this is where things get quite Odd. We'll leave. We'll, we'll get, yeah, they do get quite odd here because um, ancient Greek standards of beauty and ancient Greek sexual mores um, held that a pederastic relationship was a normal and healthy um, part of the experience of a boy coming to manhood. That it was it was understood or believed or conceived by them that uh, what happens, and this is what should happen, is an older man will fall in love with a beautiful young boy and he will take him under his wing and he will teach him the ways of manhood, he'll teach him statecraft and poetry and knowledge. And yeah. it was understood as well that part of that exchange it was, was a sexual component whereby he does also have sex with the boy and it's kind of, that's the trade almost, but this yeah. is... Uh, and. This That's was a relation, I, yeah. and this was specifically had to be a pederastic relationship because it was conceived because it was because this is the idea was that but the boy grows to manhood and he loses that desirability to him because he's a man now and it is now no longer proper to have that kind of relationship with an adult man. Um, yeah. 
but for Plato in right, the Phaedrus. Yeah. Sorry, no, you, yeah, you, I, I've spoken you, for a lot for a long okay, time. Okay, yeah, I just, I just kind of wanted to interject about that because you know, if we're in the spirit of dispelling oversimplifications or mis misunderstandings about the ancient Greeks and indeed about ideas resulting from their thought, people talk about like, oh, ancient Greek culture as being uh, LGBT positive, as you know, <laughs> and usually it's done in kind of like. As a as a kind of a foil to subsequent centuries of um, of Christian thought and Christian morality, but it's like, no, it wasn't like a kind of like really you know bi you know bi positive or like gay gay positive um, like f f loving you know it wasn't it wasn't all like hilarious you know joyous like uh, Alexander the Great and Alcibiades or whatever you know having it wasn't having, it wasn't having, gay. Having, like joyous, in the old no, sense of the joyous no, sense of the it world. is it is um it was basically just like no bottoming over 21 that's illegal yeah yeah it is true that you can find uh like you know that there are exceptions to that and it wasn't so much that it was regarded as sinful but it was it was outside of the realms of correct behavior it was taboo mm. it what it did violate um the deeply misogynistic norms they had about uh, gender and sex. Uh, it was uh, yeah, and there's actually and there is a, a, a an argument, and it's honestly it's a pretty good argument. It's not even um, this isn't even you know recent liberal innovation either. This is actually quite an older, uh, quite an old reading of the text. If you open up your Bibles, listener, and um, read the letters of Blessed Paul the Apostle, the in the the passages which in modern tra English translations, especially, for example, in Roman Catholic translations, it has to be said, um, that put in Paul's mouth the word homosexual is, a re is like, that's about 100 years old, that, the usage of that word in those texts, that translation. Um, the the And because, and it is for the simple reason that the notion, although the notion of two adults being in love with each other wasn't like a foreign idea, it was to uh, to um, classical antiquity. It was a taboo in the way that a pederastic relationship was was, so, was not only not taboo, it was normal. And there's a and it is a, a very good argument made that the what Paul is talking about there are pederastic relationships rather than consensual loving relationships between two adults, because uh, the word he uses in Greek is a word that might is his usage of it is the first recorded usage of it so it may very well have been his own uh, coinage the word arsenok arsenokoi i think it is which literally means male male bedding together so it is referring to in some sense a homosexual act but because the, the cultural realities of paul's time and like again this isn't an innovation either like like the old latin vulgate uses like the word like pederasty to describe this um Luther, when he translated the Bible into the vernacular, believe, like un believed that this was talking about um, paedophilia and so on. You know, this is that this is it's actually a really old idea that what Paul was talking about was talking about the most the standard homoerotic relationship in classical antiquity, mm. which is the pederastic, which is was more let's be frank, an abusive one, a, a relationship yeah. which is ultimately a rape. Um, Can I just um, interject at one point? Like there was uh, there was a passage on. Like I swear, blind. I remember reading when I um, read well, during my most recent reading of um, of the Birth of Tragedy, which was like about two years ago at this point. But um, you know, I've, obviously, I returned to review some quotes and things. But there was a quote I wasn't able to find. But I believe there is a section where like Nietzsche himself actually states that like there are elements of um, 
of Hellenic culture which are unacceptable, which include the practice of, um, I think he kind of, I don't remember if he explicitly conflates homosexuality and pederasty in that section, but he does, he does state, you know, we can, we can revere their achievements while condemning that. Uh, do I, you, does that kind of re- resound with you with you at any point? Um, this is embarrassing because I read um, I only read um, Birth well, and Tragedy again be. in January. I might be wrong. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I I honestly can't say, and I should be able to say either way because I read it very recently. Uh, I'm gonna have to read the whole months. thing, and if it doesn't come up, then it doesn't. Come <laughs> I'm sorry, but it is what I said earlier. What Nietzsche himself said: it is actually just a bit of a bad book. It's very dense and repetitive, and it's very mm-hmm. easy to get lost it like actually that passage i read out you know sort of like the long passage there that's from page 79 of it like you would th- i think you'd think from that it's like oh that's the summary of this that he begins with oh no 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 this is him like this is like the fifth time he's described it like that i just picked that passage more or less at random because it was quite effective but um yeah anyway we need to yeah anyway back to the back to the greeks so again you know that's one of the things that's clearly happening in Death in Venice is the playing out of that class of of that classical um, notion of new. The soul is awakened by beauty, and the most beautiful thing the soul can see is a teenage boy, because the Greeks were gross. And this is this is the great drama that plays out in Death in Venice. Um, you know what? I'm not going to talk about symposium. Uh, I'm just, just going to skip over that. Symposium's a really fun read. Go and read that. Mm. It's a nice little <laughs> thing about love. It's great. A guy just like, tra- it's just a bunch of them having a conversation about what love is. And then like about three quarters of the way in, someone just gate crashes the party they're having to just start drunkenly like singing songs about how hot Socrates is at the time they went to bed together, but they didn't um, have sex. <laughs> it's very strange. Is that Alcibiades? I don't know. But like, I mean, um, it is, yes. Maybe we can return to the symposium when we maybe do an episode on Hedwig and the Angry Inch because oh that could be good or we could just close this out on the origin of love from said film and maybe we should but I mean Um, so so we're gonna we're gonna like briefly elide um symposium were you gonna mention the point about like what the actual definition of platonic love as defined in the symposium uh, were we gonna? Because I do, I do think we need to bring that up. That that's very potent. Yes, yeah, 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 yes, yeah. We've kind of lost, lost ourselves. Well, this is this is actually from. Uh, oh God, I can't even bloody remember if he says it in Symposium or not. But he definitely says it in Phaedrus. Uh, you know, because I mean, like we were just saying um, that you know this relationship for the Greeks was a sec- was overtly a sexual one, but Plato in the Phaedrus goes in a different direction with it and he actually says that it should be a chaste relationship and the implication for that though is because for Plato or for Socrates um, because we'll never be able to solve the Socratic problem of where the Socrates end and Plato begins for Socrates uh, for Plato um, sex is a base thing that belongs to the body and the philosopher should be bringing themselves out of the body to contemplate the eternal and so for him he's kind of he wants to sort of he's proposing a sort of like a reform of that relationship but not because though he's figured out maybe we shouldn't be having sex with children maybe that's not okay rather than that what he's instead he's saying that it shouldn't be sexual because that's not you know it should you know you should you shouldn't be an erotic being you should instead um cultivating yourself an appreciation of true beauty and true beauty is something that um 
is not does not relate to anything that is it does not relate to the material it is something that you learn about it through individual instances of um the beautiful actually i am doing a symposium now because this is the ladder in the symposium think, you start you start with um, contemplating yeah. specific beautiful things like beautiful people and then beautiful institutions and then you eventually reach contemplation of the beautiful as such but he thinks this has to be chased because if you give in to your base urges you're damaging your soul's return to the realm of the eternal basically I, I believe it was in um in the symposium which is basically yeah as you mentioned it's like a drunken party like analog it's all you know like diatribe thing um i think a version of that argument comes up and then is immediately undermined by the fact that they're like they're talking about these ideas of chastity while some extremely beautiful boys are like dancing in front of them and then they just like start com commenting about how they want to bang them <laughs> and or something like that but um but it's like it's a little more self-aware and it's or it's like, identifying this as being something like perhaps we are a little uh human or too human to to really actually make this a thing that happens but is it am i is it in phaedrus or the um symposium that the 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 kind of divine model because you know we've got like the two competing divine models of the Apolline and the Dionysian this too has a divine model which is uh, Zeus and Ganymede um, which I think was that identified as a chaste relationship and like Ganymede was the cup bearing boy to the gods oh god uh, he does talk about that in the features but um, that was like I read that in the before times <laughs> mm. <laughs> before. Reader, go <laughs> listener go read Phaedrus Please go read Phaedrus, which again I've read quite recently, but uh, but I clearly have forgotten. Damn it, Sean! We're trying to be professional about this. People are paying to hear shit now. Well, like paying to like some people are for doing. That. Some people are paying some things for some things. Mm. Um, and We're it, on but, Patreon, no, by the way. You know, just in case they're Yeah, please give us money. Um, yes, yeah, but 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 um, but 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 but. Uh, and that, but the other text I want to bring up briefly here, and this is going to be very briefly, is uh, Republic, which is mm -hmm. uh, the place where you should... I always say like it, that's the place you should start if you become interested in philosophy. Just read Republic because it's great and it covers so many things. But uh, Republic, which repeats uh, a lot of these same metaphysical themes, the ideas of the contemplation of things in themselves. Um, in Republic, the sun kind of it, uh, it acts as an analogy for the good in itself and the beautiful in itself. Mm. And this is one of the most. I think this is. Uh, I mean, returning to the film itself, I think this is the most um, visually like powerful statement um, of purpose, almost, or or, or, co or a confirmation of the philosophical currents running through the film, and um, and I mean specifically I mean, the film here at the last. I mean, scene, as you might say, it is last... a very visual film. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shout out to like ages ago. Didn't to... you say that about Death in Venice? And you were like, wait. This is no, about about um, I said about, it about it's like it's a very visual film. Yes, but I said the but I said the same thing about House. Uh, we struggle with these things because yeah. we're not very visual people. We're trying. Right. Plato, Republic. So, all right, Ashenbach. Last scene, Ashenbach. He's on his deck chair. He's watching Tachio playing with his mates, and there's a very and there's a very very strange moment how it ends is Tagio is standing on the sandbanks quite some distance from him as the sun is setting and he sort of looks to Ashenbach and this is 
possibly the first time, the only time he actually acknowledges Ashenback is there. Because he's just been following him around for the whole he of the story. He sort of gives him a few strangely charged looks, like when he he's going to the left. Yeah. But, but, uh, but, he, but he that's looks... kind of just like, could be anyone. He's just sort of like accidental eye contact or something. But, but yeah, he, this he is, looks to this him. active acknowledgement. He looks to him. And yeah. then he looks away from him and he po- extends his hand out and he points to the sun. And that's an Ashenback dies contemplating that. And I think what, it, what we're seeing here is the dramatization of that platonic journey of Tagio, who is the, you know, the individual instance of the beautiful, looking to Ashenback and then pointing away from himself to, the be- to beauty as such, to the beautiful in itself. So, no, I. Um, not should not be the focus of your contemplation because I'm only an instance of the beautiful. You must instead go beyond that to contemplate the beautiful in itself, and it almost takes on uh, the role of a of the psychopomp here because this is Ashenbach's dying moments, and he almost takes and he takes on the role almost of a guide here. And in fact, this is made explicit in the text of the novel because one of the because diff- the difference is an interesting difference that he doesn't point to the sun in the novel. I'll just read. I'm just going to uh, read the. I'll read the whole passage actually. At the edge of the sea, he lingered, head bowed, drawing figures in the wet sand with the point of one foot, then walked into a shallow high water, which at its deepest point did not even wet his knees. He waded through it, advancing easily, and reached the sandbar. There he stood for a moment looking out into the distance, and then, moving left, began slowly to pace the length of this narrow strip of unsubmerged land. Divided from the shore by a width of water, divided from his companions by proud caprice, he walked, a quite isolated and unrelated apparition, walked a floating hair out there in the sea, in the wind, in front of the nebulous vastness. Once more he stopped to survey the scene, and suddenly, as if prompted by memory, by an impulse, he turned at the waist, one hand on his hip, with an enchanting twist of the body, and looked back over his shoulder at the beach. There the watcher sat, as he had sat once before when those twilight grey eyes, looking back at him, then from that other threshold, had for the first time met his. Resting his head on the back of his chair, he had slowly turned it to follow the movements of the walking figure in the distance. Now he lifted it towards this last look, and it sank down on his breast, so that his eyes stared up from below, while his face wore the inert, deep-sunken expression of profound slumber. But to him, it was as if the pale and lovely soul summoner out there was smiling to him, beckoning to him, as if he loosed his hand from his hip and pointed outwards, hovering ahead and onwards, into an immensity rich with unutterable expectation. And as so often, he set out to follow him. It's a very good book. Like, yeah, it's a really, good, it's a very good book. That Thomas Mann, quite a good writer, total I creep. Have, I have but, something I kind of I wanted to ask about that, and just like kind of, basically, I think it's uh the book left me feeling kind of neutral on the subject, but the film, I think made it very clear that this was a tragedy. You know, that this was a, a, just a, a calamity. I'm going to use the word calamity more than tragedy. Yes. That it's kind of like he gets overwhelmed by these forces of nature of the Dionysian and stuff. And it comes 
you know, like, when he breaks down in the street and starts weeping after, like, going through these processes of trying to make himself young, and, well, actually, I think that might even be before he tries to make himself young, but it's, like, after he's, like, kind of acknowledges his failures and his pain and is uh, reflecting on, like, the, 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 the sufferings and the knocks to his spirit that he experienced before coming here, that, um, you know, that's when he's undergoing this transformation, and then the fact that he doesn't... he. D- there doesn't appear to be any form of like salvation for him he just dies but with the with the kind of interpretation of like is Tadzio a kind of psychopomp leading him towards this fate is is he becoming and I'm going to articulate this term I'm about to use more more concise you know um in more detail in a little bit but is he becoming immortal is this him actually not dying a failure but in death finding finally that uh, thing that um, again, I'm going to bring this up again, but like Nietzsche described as the primordial, primordial unity, is this in fact a joyous moment of transcendence well, for this him? Is, this is what I mean when I say that I I think that we do have kind of a a conflict, more so than a conflict, just a conflict between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. I think we have a conflict between the Nietzschean and the Platonic almost because I mm. can't when I think of that uh, scene. I can't help but see it as the um, as the victory of, of of Plato here. That in his dying moments, and it's, he is led away from the contemplation of the beauty in the particular to the eternal. To this, I mean, in the and in the film, it's the sun to which uh, Tajio points. But in the book, he just kind of points outwards into infinity, almost. And well, I mean, into this, into the yeah. impo- into the uh, en- into the endlessness of possibility, and I, that to me does, see, I, I f- that does seem to be kind of like, the victory of the transcendent over the imminent. That this is him, venturing outwards from, uh, his life as it has been, and into this new re- into the realm of eternity instead, led by the contempt. He's led by the contemplation of the beautiful, uh. But yes, I think that, uh, and actually, an int- uh, just a little, uh, little uh, diversion. The coil song, uh, the golden section, uh, has it is uh, is a set, it's the end of it's the uh, penultimate track on their album, The Anal Staircase, and it's a fantastic it's a fantastic track because it's this it's over like the industrial noises and all that. It's a it was like a BBC presenter. They got to read a long passage from Peter Lamble Wilson's book about angels, where he huh. discusses, um, how, I mean, talking about the relationship between uh, uh, Eros and Thanatos, death and beauty, or death and love rather, and um, the and specifically talking about uh, how in some um, Sufi traditions and mystical traditions, when the angel of death appears, if you have like. Resolved your not resolve yourself. If you've kind of like accepted um, death, you witness uh, death appears to you as a beautiful maiden or a beautiful boy, and it's said and specifically they say that uh, a beautiful boy appears to the poet Rumi. Um, and I think it's also and also like and it just a little parallel remark here. Uh, Peter Lambon Wilson complete uh, creepo as well uh, famously oh, famous famous wrong and defensive of pederasty Peter Lambert if we're going to just like kind of be um, spelling out the numbers of um, there are a lot of wrong involved with this tangentially connected to this film tangentially in any, or immediately in any thematically or immediate sense like Visconti himself is a bit of an ass you know a bit of a fucking creep like um I think it's like 
uh, uh, Bjorn Andresen actually talks about like how he was he deeply uncomfortable Tadzio about the film. Yeah, who plays Tadzio in the film was deeply uncomfortable about the fact that he was being made into this kind of like pederastic gay icon effectively by Luciano Visconti and the fact that like after the premiere and stuff it was um, you know they all went to gay bars and stuff and just kind of led him around as this kind of prize asset and it's like Jesus Christ you know um, and but yeah so that's just there's a there's a lot of great discomfort that must necessarily arise from discussing this but we've got to Thomas Mann himself, like we've already like mentioned in passing, he was a creep. But it's actually like he he were he were a creep. Like it's is uh, is worth emphasizing that. And there's a uh, and I'm just going to read this straight off of a Wikipedia actually. But um, uh, here it is. Yes, uh, Anthony uh, Anthony Heilbert's biography, Thomas Mann: Eras and Literature, uncover the centrality of Mann's sexuality to his uhura. A Gilbert Adair's work, The Real Taggio, described how, in the summer of 1911, Mann had stayed at the at the uh, Grand Hotel das Bains because I can't do accents uh, on the li- on the Lido of Venice with his wife and brother, where he became enraptured with the angelic figure of oh no, a Polish name I can't I thought I'm gonna butcher this so badly. Uh, Vladislav Moyes, I think is the name. I'm sorry, I've, I've certainly butchered that. A ten-year-old, ten-year-old Polish boy. Um, Jesus, I thought he was thirteen. Yeah. Man's diary records his attra- Man's diary records his attraction to his own thirteen-year-old son, Izzy Klausman. Quote, Klaus, to whom I feel very drawn, uh, is one quotation. In the background conversations about man-to-man eroticism, uh, in the background conversations about man-to-man eroticism take place. A long letter is written to Carla Maria Weber on this topic, while the diary reveals, quote, in love with Klaus during these days, quote, Icy, who enchants me right now, quote, delight over Icy, who in his bath is terribly handsome, find it very natural that I'm in love with my son. Icy lay reading in bed with. I'm actually not gonna. No, I'm not gonna read anymore because you get. You get. It gets very, very gross. You get the idea. Like Thomas Mann, I mean, he did. He had a neurotic fixation on his own. I mean, I'm glad um, you did bring son. that up because that's yeah. not, that that does actually <laughs> chime with something I do want to reflect on in a bit. But um, so yeah, so basically, um, one of the things that I think is useful and indeed necessary at this point to break us out of this fucking like hell of the human spirit. That our discourse around, um, around, <laughs> around um, death in Venice has led us to, is um, the idea of um, is is just the point about like situating this both in terms of its historical literary context, and, to, and by this I mean the text of Death in Venice, situating it within its historical literary context, and also um, its uh, context in the study of like. Um, of of queerness because you know this is and remains despite everything a landmark figure of uh queer literature and as such must be objectively viewed with a with a view to well, yeah, objectively studied with a view to uh to purely you know objectively stating you know this is here it's present we've got to talk about that irrespective of how we feel about it because it's present and um I think at this point, uh, you mentioned, you know, we do need to kind of tie this back to Nietzsche, who um, we did, we set it up so elaborately there and um, and then kind of just like got, got a bit bogged down in just the Greeks themselves. But um, I think one of the things that it's a quote, actually, I'm going to bring up, um, 
which I think is especially pertinent, is um, one that Thomas Mann actually came out with, um, where he's, this is him talking about um, Oscar Wilde, but um, he, he states, it is curious, although comprehensible, that aestheticism was the first manifestation of, Europe's of the European mind's rebellion against the whole morality of the bourgeois age. Not for nothing have I coupled the names of Nietzsche and Wilde. They belong together as rebels, rebels in the name of beauty. Um, and yeah, basically, I think we touched on this like in the Lovecraft episode when we were talking about like the first kind of formation of a homosexual identity, um, or at least kind of a landmark in that development coming in the form of uh, the trial of Oscar Wilde. Um, bit of a recap, so in 1890-something, he was, um, he, well, this is Oscar Wilde, uh, author of The Portrait of Dorian Gray, champion of the, um, you know, arguably kind of brightest star of, like, the decadent literary movement, um, Victorian dandy, and uh, convicted uh, of, um, convicted, you know, arrested for um, practicing homosexuality and put on trial. And then the trial, the text of the trial, was something that formulated the concept of homosexuality going into the 20th century. Um, that was basically, I mean, this is a point that I'm just going to kind of articulate, re-articulate, just because I think it is so pertinent rather than just refer back to the Lovecraft episode, but the idea that homosexuality existed in a kind of null void state that it had no expression because the only kind of concept of expression of romantic love or the formation of that as the basis of an identity was through um was through the heterosexual model and um and the and the the way that um the decadent movement was able to create this homosexual you know a space where a homosexual equivalent or indeed not anti-equivalent anti antithesis was possible um, and thus give it kind of matter or material, you know, acknowledged concrete status was in, in relief as a kind of occupying of a kind of negative space of pure aesthetics. And this is um, basically the model of the decadent movement that we talk about was the championing, uh, you know, that, that led to a model of homosexuality that became comprehensible in the late 19th century was the championing of the dandy figure and um what's curious about that is the fact that so the dandy figure you know the esthete the person who um who exists through external appearances uh who um and like kind of acknowledges the shallowness of it but um but in acknowledging the shallowness is actually able to um is able to basically just say like okay yes this is shallow and uh considered unacceptable to the mores of our time but why why do that why is that necessary even if it's shallow even if it's completely hollow it's still there it's still something we're thinking about it still has a cognitive structure can an existence not be placed off of that that in very rudimentary terms is the concept of the decadent of the late 19th century Victorian dandy in literary terms, and that is the pure model of the aesthete uh, that, um, that Oscar Wilde occupied, and it is the model of the, the homosexual, um, that, as they were able to then exist, um, or, you know, form a kind of existence from there. And um, it was in both of these, it was in this figure that um, 
man, for reasons perhaps that I actually am not entirely clear on, identified both Oscar Wilde and Nietzsche. I think it was like Oscar Wilde because he was the embodiment of the dandy, but Nietzsche because he, whether through um, whether through his writings in The Birth of Tragedy or some other iteration of it, was able to, you know, um, was able to present a more kind of co uh, a more developed idea of this principle of aesthetics. Um, but the curious thing that I think comes out of this, which I really, you know, which does need to be picked apart, is the fact that, um, okay, I'm actually going to read uh, the, the essay actually I used as a as a source for this was uh, comparative from the journal Comparative Literature and Culture and is by, it's called Wild and the Model of Homosexuality in Man's Todd in Vendig, which is Death in Venice, by a, a scholar called James Wilper, who is, um, who was a, a lecturer at, at Queen Mary when this was written in 2013. And um, yeah, so the quote um, in this section, yeah, he says, um, and this is from an essay of 1947, so broadly contemporaneous with uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Faustus, this is Thomas Mann. Um, he wrote an essay called Nietzsche's Philosophy in the Light of Recent History. Um, and he states, well, this is Walpole stating, Mann charts the parallels in thought between Wilde and Nietzsche as follows. When Wilde declares, for try as we may, we cannot get behind the appearance of things to reality. And the terrible reason may be that there is no reality in things apart from their appearances. When he speaks of the truth of masks, quote, and the, quote, decay of the lie, when he bursts out, to me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. Uh, the true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. When he calls truth something so personal that we, um, that uh, the same truth can never be recognized by two different minds. When he says, every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the minds that poisons us. The only way to, rid, um, of, to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And don't be led astray into paths and uh, to the paths of virtue. We cannot help seeing that all these quotations might have come from Nietzsche. Um, that is Thomas Mann writing about Nietzsche and Oscar Wilde. And that's, that is the context of his comment about um, rebels in the name of beauty. And what's pertinent there is uh, and indeed kind of like marks a striking juxtaposition is, and I'm going to start with the Nietzschean angle first, the point that, um, so the reason, the historical context, the reason why Nietzsche argues that we've been divorced from, um, from the, you know, the, the greatness that was uh, within, you know, which the ancient Greeks were capable of, specifically the ancient Athenians were capable of, was um, was essentially uh, Christianity's um, flight from the Dionysian because it represented something amoral. Um, and I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to... It's also like, worth mentioning, yeah. sorry, just, just very quickly, that uh, Nietzsche also described Christianity as being a Platonism Hello? for the masses. Relating yeah. to what I was saying earlier ah. about the notion of, hello. Yeah, hi. Yeah, no, that is that is quite pertinent. I think that's maybe something we could we could contextualize this with if we've got time. So but you're, break, you're actually bre you're actually uh, you're actually breaking up a bit, Lucy. Uh, okay, let's just let, wait. Let's just wait a moment then. All right. Uh, so yeah, where I was up to was basically um, one of the things that um, that uh, yeah. I guess like this isn't so. 
he basically identified Christianity as having uh, as being kind of a blocking point that prevented the Dionysian currents be- from being able to influence culture in such a way as they had done with the Greeks in the centuries after that point. But it's not so much, um, I think, Christianity specifically as a theology that he's arguing with here so much as the culture of Christianity that followed. Um, so he talks about kind of like the embracing of the Dionysian, the uh, passing moment of wit, levity, caprice, and the are its highest deities. Uh, you know that that whole thing, uh, which he contextualizes that he describes as Greek cheerfulness, which is something we do need to return to as well. But um, he says it was this semblance of quote Greek cheerfulness which so revolted the deep-minded and formidable natures of the first four centuries of Christianity. This womanish flight from earnestness and terror, this cowardly contentedness and e- with easy pleasure, was not only contemptible to them but seemed a specifically anti-Christian sentiment. So basically, you know, they could, they um, Christianity couldn't get on board with even the positives that were possible from the Dionysian because of the overwhelming power of the negatives. Um, that's you know, it's a simplistic simplification. But what is interesting that I find striking about that is the fact that um, the kind of like aestheticism, dandyism that. Uh, that is the Wildian model of homosexuality was in revolt against Christian morality as well. So what we get, weirdly, is a model of the um, of the the homosexual kind of like free, uh, liberated um, aesthete figure is ultimately an expression of the Apolline. And so, you know, we, we associate kind of dandyishness with foppishness, with laziness, with the slovenliness, you know, or, or kind of shallowness. But at the same time, that is the Apolline model. Uh, it's the kind of like, and the expression of artifice. And so, and this, I think this characterization comes out even more clearly in the film Death in Venice, where he is like Aschenbach for everything, even before his kind of like um, transformation into the effeminate, uh, kind of like pseudo young man later on in the film. He is weirdly an Apolline dandy, um, which is mm. something that I think definitely needs to be kind of like in uh, Benjamin Britten's in Benjamin Britten's opera. In fact, he swears an oath to Apollo explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which yes, is because, yeah, and yeah, because the you know the figure of the dandy is you know is a, is a. The, uh, is the idea of sort of like a self-created beauty, uh, mm-hmm. an individual beauty, which again sort of yeah. like the reinforce, the reinforcing the principium individuationis, the principle of individuality, of separateness and self-standingness. Mm-hmm. And I think like I think this se- I think just to kind of like segue into the section, I'm going to include some quotes from the film that uh, we are at this point now harking back to because there's it's it wears a lot of it on the surface. The film I think uh, it makes it very explicit, thankfully. Uh, being such a visual film as it is, but... um... Your great error, my dear friend, is to consider life, reality, as a limitation. But isn't that what it is? Reality only distracts and degrades us. You know, sometimes I think... Sometimes I think that artists are rather like hunters aiming in the dark. They don't know what their target is and they don't know if they've hit it. But you can't expect life to illuminate the target and steady your aim. The creation of beauty and purity is a 
a spiritual act. No, Gustav. No. But I think this this model of the homosexual that I've now kind of outlined, I think, is is worth bearing in mind now going into. Well, actually, no, just kind of a side point, which I want to leave kind of hanging after it once I've made it to possibly pick up later is we we talked about um, this this fiction, this text and its role in, um, for better or worse, its landmark status in queer literature. And one of the things that is brought up is the fact that well one of the things that I had you that I had kind of internalized and then only questioned after a couple of readings and a wider reading was the sense that it's like no it's what this is saying isn't something it's not saying that kind of 19th century uh, homosexuality was inherently pederastic the, what the, that model used the classical model as a kind of stylized expression of itself um, so that you know whenever when it talks about um, when it talks about uh, you know Phaedo when it talks about uh, Ganymede when it talks about kind of beautiful boys and things it's talking about like what we today you know rightly consider you know acceptable sexuality um, but it was using a classical model as basically a kind of cipher for doing so a kind of like an anal a literary analog because there's that long tradition of like uh you know going back even to like milton and things as like classical classical imagery is uh i think the term the greek term actually in fact is adiaphora which is indifferent things in that used using greek stuff in a christian context it can be useful for didactic purposes uh, as long as it's not taken seriously on any kind of uh, theological level. Um, and so that's a continuation of that understanding that this is, um, that this is, um, that this is adiaphora. It's like, it's just, um, it's taking advantage of that state of the ancient Greek culture status of adiaphora to convey a coded version of homosexuality to get under the kind of censure of 19th century morality in the same way that you know stuff like Polari uh, developed as a kind of code and things you know it's a tantamount to that but actually no there is a lot of very explicit pedera you know actually going on but actually one other kind of example I wanted to use in this context if we're talking about kind of uh, the way in which this terminology and this imagery was used is uh to cite the um for not for the first time on this podcast cite the wonderful series of books by P.G. Woodhouse, later adapted in the 1990s by Fr with Fry and Laurie, uh, the, um, the Jeeves and Worcester series. Um, one of the things about that is the fact that uh, the kind of s society of valets that Jeeves is a part of is called the Junior Ganymede Society, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, um, listeners make of that what you will but yeah so to we, yeah that's again I said as I said I, I'm gonna leave that hanging because there is kind of something more more pressing I want to kind of bring this to which I think is possibly the most significant expression of Nietzscheanism in the text and um actually one thing I will bring up just you know if we're, if we're talking about decadence we're now moving so we've talked about the decadence and this inherited model of homosexuality or the aesthete being a creation of the decadence um 
Thomas Mann, while kind of praising that tradition, is not a part of it. He is very much a figment of European modernism. But it's the uh, critic that we keep coming to, Andrew Hewitt, who identifies actually Oscar Wilde in his develop, in his kind of articulation of this aestheticism that um, that represents the um, that represents kind of the uh, the almost the kind of transition point between uh, fin de Cecile decadence and modernist literature um, in in a certain way. Um, so. But, you know, keeping that in mind, we're now thinking about the, the tradition of European modernism, of which uh, Death in Venice is fundamentally a part. Um, one of the, the reason I kind of tie this to, well, raise this in the context of Nietzsche is this sense that one of the key currents in modernist literature um, is, and for, for reasons I think are too elaborate now to go into, is a kind of continuation of this sense of um, supreme kind of inability or terror in the, or just great uncertainty in the face of the accomplishments of the ancient Greeks and uh, just a profound sense of, um, of despair at one's own age that one is unable to ever kind of like, um, to reach that point. And that's something, you know, that's a central conceit of Nietzsche uh, in death and and um, the birth of tragedy, that he he kind of that's his ultimate goal of wrestling with this. How do we reconcile that? And that's something we see crop up a number of times in um, in modernist literature. I mean, um, a death in Venice being no exception, but perhaps a more sophisticated version. But we see it in um, and I'm going on like kind of plus, ten year plus recollections of this novel, but um, but it's uh, it's. Crime and Punishment, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Uh, they talk about the classical, you know, how uh, Raskolnikov is attempting to reach that level of tantamount to kind of Hellenic immortality through his philosophical treatise on crime. And when he's busted by a guy who's basically figured him out and is giving him a dressing down, is kind of like putting his ideas, you know, like stating the measure of him he says you've reached the pillars of hercules but you know that's about it you can go no further that it's kind of you're you know this tragic figure of you know you've accomplished everything that's possible available to you in this age but you're not going to reach immortality and um and i think that is a struggle that um that gustav von aschenbach is also encountering because he's championing uh, in a very Nietzschean sense, this um, this this kind of like um, post-Hellenic um, idea, but he's as with Nietzsche, he's struggling to bring it about in concrete terms, or you know, or in a way that is actually you know, even if it's theoretically conceivable, it's not artistically p possible, and. Um, like the the extrapolation I'm here making is this idea that um, in the figure of the dandy is he is he attempting in in a certain sense to bridge this gap that is so striking to so many of his peers through homosexuality or is homosexuality and this the identity of the homosexual or just like the very nature of homosexual desire 
um, the thing that's been keeping him from that, and is he now kind of like reconnecting with the with the Hellenic past by by embodying this and by succumbing to it or by envisaging it? And he doesn't because he dies. But you know, is that <laughs> is that what is happening here? Um, and like, basically, you know, that's that's a question I'm going to leave. Again, that's something I'm not going to like necessarily resolve on. But I think what it does is um, ultimately set us up very neatly for the Freudian reading of um, of Death in Venice, which I now want to move on to. But I, just before I do, I mean, is there anything you wanted to kind of elaborate on that? Yes. Um, one thing that is worth mentioning um, in terms of just how the Apollonian and the Dionysian do actually figure in the uh, texts uh, is the most important um well, the most striking Dionysian moment is this, uh, it, and it appears in the film. It appears in the book, but not in the film. Is the dream that he has? Oh yes, where he, sure. where he, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he has this uh, this nightmare of a of a great, essentially a great Dionysian revelry. Um, yeah. And it do, is. Do you want me to read it? Actually, I've got like the quote copied out, and I, I did want to try and bring this in at some point. Yes, please do. Okay. Okay. All right. Fear was the beginning, fear and lust and a horrified curiosity of what would be coming. It was night, and his senses were listening intently, because from away a commotion, a noise, a din approached, a rattling, a clashing, a muffled thunder, shrill cheers, and a howling of ooh, an ooh sound, uh, all mixed and sweetly drowned in a terrible way with deep sounding and continual flute playing, which cast an obtrusive spell on the entrails. And he saw a phrase, a dark but denoting, uh, saw a phrase dark but denoting what was coming, the alien god. The smoky fervency was smouldering. There he recognised the mountains, similar to the ones surrounding his summer house, and in the spotty light from woody hills between trunks and mossy boulders it thundered earthwards like a vortex. Men, animals, a swarm, a raging horde, and flooded the place with bodies, flames, tumult, and lurching dance. It goes on, but like it's really long. But you know, that's that. Yeah, there you have it. Yes, and what? And yes, and what happens subsequent to this dream is up until that point, Ashenbach had maintained to himself almost that his obsession with Tajia was just contemplation of the beautiful. He was just mm-hmm. contemplating something beautiful. But following this dream, his lust becomes more. It becomes obvious to him. Like he realizes the actual nature of his desire, and he becomes more kind of like naked in pursuing that. Like it's after that point where like the family pick up on the fact that he's following them all the time because he's mm. no longer keeping a distance, and they have and they've started to sort of like make sure Targio is walking closer to them when they go out and about the city than they had before. And which and it's, there's a line where it's something like Ashenbach says. At one hand, he was like that sickened at the thought that they think he would do something to Tajio at the same time he recognises like they're correct to be wary around him now mm. um, and it is this and in framing it in, Nietzsche, in these Nietzschean terms if the Dionysian if ultimately you're saying the Dionysian to an extent is simply nature or the nature of things this is kind of like like clashing through the Apollonian boundaries he set around himself this mm-hmm. is the arrival of the truth of it and it is a traumatic experience of the arrival of the truth of it, which is simply that he is sexually desires a boy 
that yeah. that's the thing that's ultimately the thing that he had been running from almost and that's the the mo like well, he no longer can and he ha- and he has to simply and he accepts that almost uh, like an initiation almost and um, but this is like but like I said already this is this is troubled by the platonism of the final scene for me where I this is why I think I think what we're seeing in in this text is a wrestling between the Apollonian and the Dionysian on one hand and on the other the platonic conception of the beautiful and maybe in his dying without ever actually having spoken to Tajio or having touched him maybe his dying in a sense chaste is mm-hmm. what is, is is actually giving him this platonic release into the higher realms of eternity maybe that is his, his salvation is him kind of moving through this illusion he creates for himself about what's actually going on here his discovery of its reality and then ultimately literally dying to that and instead following an idealized literally platonically idealized vision of the beautiful into another realm of of being into Mm -hmm. a truer eternal realm the platonic vision of the truth of the eternal Mm. (sighs) (laughs) yeah but like freud um yes lucy freud tell us tell us tell us well i mean like that is kind of i'm just gonna start as a as a opening point that um rather than so i was kind of approaching this from i think i guess working backwards the idea of like kind of critical theory at uh comparing both Freud and man in terms of thinking about stuff but I think if nothing else this um the presence of Freud demonstrates on one level the um on one level the fact that Thomas Mann almost certainly read some Freud before writing this and then read more Freud uh as he wrote things like uh Dr Faustus and the other point being that um Freud himself was working in ultimately from the same classical tradition and uh, as Thomas Mann was and drawing probably on Nietzsche to some extent and um, and you know the fact that like a lot of his work uses the terms like narcissism and things as a kind of codification of his much beloved classical studies but um, but the thing I raise in light of that that one aspect that you've just mentioned is um, is this the is the fact that kind of self-deception is a fundamental uh, quality of um is a fundamental quality of the subconscious in that um the subconscious acts as a filter because the the unconscious exists without a filter it is the playing out of genuine of like genuine desires genuine things un- unmoderated by the um the the ideas of respectability or rightness or um or stylistic concerns of the rational mind and then the rational mind uh, acts to displace these things so even though like it doesn't necessarily disguise things or always keep them secret because you can't really keep a secret to yourself what you can what the subconscious is a well, the, the rational the conscious is able to do is translate the unconscious into a form that it is able to find acceptable and in this case um what we're seeing is the unacceptable attraction to a, a 
not just a child, but a male child, uh, translated into the acceptable, I'm, um, I'm studying beauty. I'm appreciating things on an aesthetic level and thereby embodying, as every good European should, this aspect of the Greeks. And so that, you know, and so, um, and just like another kind of like element of Freudianness before my main kind of Freudian reading of this is the fact that so we have that, that inherent nature of self-deception, but, um, but also, you know, this, this, this characterization, this notion of self-deception is a fundamental part of the death drive as we understand it because, or, you know, or, or specifically kind of like masochism that, um, is related related to the death drive in terms of the function of the libido, the sense that um, that the the human, you know, the the rational or you know rational following the model set by the irrational drives towards its own destruction, but um, but disguises its motivations uh, in other ter- in more acceptable terminology. And actually, I think it was as a quote I kind of wanted to use several times, you know, a couple of times, because it's just like a really beautiful articulation of how this works, but it comes up in uh, Josh Cohen's How to Read Freud, where he uses the analogy of a Charlie Brown strip, where uh, this brings up the idea of repetition as well. Like basically there's this recurring joke where Charlie Brown is going to kick a football and the girl character, I forget her name, uh, whenever he's just about to kick the football, snatches it away and he kicks in the air and like does a backwards somersault and hits his head and like wounds himself and (laughs) he keeps doing this but every time he does it he says this time i'm actually gonna get it this time i'm properly gonna um kick that thing right out of the park and i just need this opportunity to prove it um and he's not unaware that it's probably the same thing is going to happen again but he is he's making excuses to himself that he's masochistically subjecting himself to the pain of having the ball snatched away and kicking into the air and injuring his back and leg um or contracting cholera um as does (laughs) Gustav von Aschenbach but the reason why I um so like the Freudian model I bring up is useful here to articulate because I um because it links back to the Nietzschean via the, uh, the uh, via the decadence, um, and this is again something I brought up in the context of um, of uh, of of the like Lovecraft episode. But it's basically, and and this is something I get like that was kind of articulate. You know, it's deriving from um, Freud's uh, essay on narcissism, which I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quickly check the year. Uh, but I think it was um, one of his early ones, I think, 1914. So actually two years after this, interestingly. Um, but um, the idea that, uh, that... So narcissism is... It's identified as like kind of the, the, mod, well, the earliest iteration of Freud's attempt to... Um, articulate how homosexuality works. And the reason I bring it up in the context of Andrew Hewitt is because um, he mentioned that this was part of like a, a wider thing across the continent, which was conflicting 
identifications of homosexuality and the aesthetic model was the one that we gained from the decadence and the more kind of uh, the Freudian model was interesting because it it is ultimately the more progressive one in that it takes it out of a moral sphere and into a scientific sphere but at the same but in doing so is inherently pathologizing and and despite being overtly scientific or explicitly scientific can't help but be affected by the uh the moral tone of the age and, and society in which it emerged out of but um but the freudian model okay so I discussed it before briefly, I think, or all too briefly, as being related to a, um, a developmental disorder. Um, so I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to articulate this more clearly. Um, that So when I say developmental disorder, um, this Freud perceived hetero... I think, actually, no, I think it's first important to say that, like, kind of, uh, Freud merges, you know, very frequently conflates or um, into or varies between reading homosexuality as a um, as a sexual identity and as a gendered identity. But um, his reading of heterosexuality is that um, it is the correct development is that one um, identifies first with the mother and then, um, and then, well, you know, it's all desire is inherently based on this concept of narcissism. That uh, the fundamental, that like a person, naturally a man, is born into a state of primordial, childish narcissism, which he's, he breaks out of by being able to develop um, develop a fixation with the mother. Hence, the you know the Oedipal concept, um, and that. Um, and it's from this that he derives the notion of um, object love. Um, and I think he, yeah, I've actually got a quote. Uh, he adds that complete object love of the attachment type is, properly speaking, characteristic of the male. Um, in that, so like a male, the, the most rational, the, uh, the, the, the platonically sound, or no, Aristotelianly, Arist Aristotelianly sound um, male is he develops into adulthood and um, is able to function in the world by developing object attachment which results in a rational a, um, a rational assessment of the world around him but his attraction to all well Freud categorizes all attraction as being towards what what one himself is what he himself what he himself is what he himself was what he himself would like to be or someone who was once part of himself and in the case of the man he's attracted to a woman because women don't lose that fundamental narcissism so uh in being attracted to a woman you are attracted to the uh primordial narcissism that was once yourself and um the, the the ultimate goal that he describes this state as being is towards a self is towards becoming a self-sufficient desiring machine and i believe it's actually um that is i believe that's hewitt actually stating that but that's an articulation of that fundamentally freudian thing um but the the where freud draws a distinction for homosexuals is um he he describes as um well this is using uh 
Hewitt's contextualization, narcissistic object choice, meanwhile, is typical of, quote, people who have suffered some disturbance, such as perverts and homosexuals, and those who have taken as an object not their mother, but their own selves. And so that attraction is still prevalent, but now they're attracted to what he himself is, which is a man, what he himself was, which is a child, what he himself would like to be, uh, or someone who was once part of himself. But crucially, the thing here is becoming both the desiring subject, the desiring entity, but also the subject of the desire. And hence, um, hence what this develops into is a characterization of a homosexual who is simultaneously pederastic, but also in in enacting this homosexual desire is kind of like transcending time to an earlier state of their own being and as much as um as much as the um as much as death in venice is an adaptation you know like a thematic adaptation of the birth of tragedy it could almost were it not for the fact that it came out two years before this paper was published, it could almost be like a thematic adaptation of that principle because he is attracted to the boy because he's attracted to the child version of himself because he is has lost connection with the childhood version of himself. And this is something that they, you know, bring up right up top in the film where there's that kind of... Um, we, we're presented with the despairing Aschenbach during a flashback talking about his own childhood recollection of watching the sand imperceptibly disappear from the top half of a, I'm wanting to say egg timer, but your sand time thing. Hourglass. Hourglass. <laughs> um, into, um, into the lower half of the hourglass and that being kind of the perception of time. The aperture through which the sand runs is so tiny that at first it seems as if the level in the upper glass never changes. To our eyes it appears that the sand runs out only, only at the end. until it does it's not worth thinking about um but yeah so that's that's kind of like the freudian reading of that but where i link this to the nietzschean is through the fact that um through the fact that the so as well as that being kind of like a universal kind of um or at least kind of societally uh um medically ver- supposedly medically verifiable version of how that system operates it finds a kind of analogous relationship to um the classical past and greekness specifically this idea that in trying to uh reconnect with the classical past uh it's europeanness as a culture as an old culture attempting to become young again and hence why that thing i, I mentioned right up top about homosexuality and homosexual desire as being um, as being um, a path back to the past in a way that wasn't hitherto available to the modern European consciousness. I think I think it's some either it's some kind of like 
mutual kind of uh, convergent evolution of these two concepts or one is drawing on the other and it's unclear which. But I will just add before kind of like opening this up to kind of debate is, um, is the idea that like this goes back to Nietzsche as well and indeed to contemporaneously classical sources because one of the things he talk constantly talks about is the reason why um, the reason why uh, Greek culture was able to develop this kind of great greatness was this ultimately a kind of like I, I guess this is going back to what we were talking about with um, his critique of Euripides and his uh, championing of Aeschylus the youthful lack of self-awareness um, resulting in op an indefatigable optimism and the, the, the inherent Greek cheerfulness which was lost through subsequent centuries of Christianity. And, um, and I would also raise the fact that this idea of Greek cheerfulness uh, wasn't something just, you know, the, this wasn't a new concept when uh, Nietzsche was talking about it, or indeed any of his contemporaries or near contemporaries were talking about it. This is something that was actually a conscious presence in classical Athenian thought. And this is, again, I think, I believe this is going back to Phaedrus. Um, one of the things that is pointed out in that is the fact that... Um, so, Phaedrus, as well as being a very great source on, um, on philosophy and the nature of love, is also one of the primary texts we have of the Atlantis legends. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting that mixed up. That is correct, right, Jean? I think you are. I think you have actually got that mixed up. It's the... Uh... No, it's not the Phaedrus, it's the uh, Timaeus and the Cri and the Critias. Of course it is. But one of the things that is pointed out, you know, becomes apparent in that is... Um, so the, the, the articulation of the Atlantis legend that's brought up in that is, um, is a second-hand one that is supposedly a second-hand uh, retelling from um, discussions with a Egyptian scholar that... Plato or someone someone had and um, and one of the things that, that a line that's brought up in that which is interesting is the fact that so historically Greek the Greeks were characterized internationally as a young culture um, as a counterpoint to um, the Egyptians as an old culture and this is because and and this is why the Greeks don't remember um, Atlantis but the Egyptians do and the reason for this is relates back to the fact that we know about like this so just a brief history lesson the sea peoples the differentiation between anti like early antiquity and classical antiquity which we think of as the golden age of greece and such uh came because you know these were all you know, egypt the hittites all the great kind of cultures of the mediterranean and southern europe were kind of like entering into you know a, a, a period of developed civilization until a mysterious force of invading peoples came from the sea uh consi consisting of various peoples including like the the philistines and people you know this is the first mention we have of the philistines and people who basically just it was a massive like cultural catastrophe and a dying off point and lots of records and connections to that past were lost and there was a great period of rebuilding that necessarily followed but um the egyptians kept their records intact but the greeks didn't and so um the i think it's in timaeus um that the the egyptian 
scholar jokes that there is not an old man in Greece um, because they are a because they are a young culture because they are essentially cut off from the past and had to regrow. And this con- this concept of Greek youngness, this Greek youthfulness, is uh, well, you know, like forms the basis of the Greek cheerfulness we see, I believe, in Nietzsche, and indeed goes back to Thomas Mann. So there'd be a bit, a bit of a divergence there, but I think that was necessary. <laughs> but yeah, so it's all it all ties up pretty neatly, honestly. <laughs> it's interesting as well, just on the tangential point, um, in Bartimaeus, the um, the stuff about Atlantis is introduced shortly after a brief discussion about the import the necessity of allegory when explaining concepts to people. Oh, God damn that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but there's sort of, no, just, you know, just uh, an interesting little point there, sort of like the, you know, the, the notion of the necessity of mythology as a communicative tool and how you have to rely on storytelling sometimes to convey things. And then you have this little story here about uh, Atlantis and uh, the Greeks and so on, with it, you know, the various lessons that it, the various lessons that it's telling. But no, you are right that... Um, um, but it is this uh, it's an appeal to uh, a lost golden age of Athenian culture as well which didn't probably didn't you know, probably didn't exist you know for you know for Plato he's he's appealing to so a lot of the time when Athens was so great we were the only people who could stop this great empire that came from the sea who were mm. then punished by the gods for their impudence and so on yeah. uh yes yeah, so that was Freud that's Freud we've got Freud covered oh, the other thing I was going to mention that like um probably comes up in this to you know like we should probably make mention of is the fact that like so in the last episode we talked about the death drive and the um the the um the fact that there was a subconscious kind of like necessity of like pleasure and unpleasure for the balancing of thoughts i wonder if freud was thinking a little bit about nietzsche when he wrote that freud always maintained that nietzsche did not influence him but that is a Point but, no, but no, I'm saying that. I'm, that <laughs> I'm saying that. I know that Lucy. I'm saying that. Like yeah. Freud always maintained that that wasn't the case, but that is a contentious point in Freud's scholarship, where people are skeptical. Where like there are scholars who are skeptical of Freud's own account there. So right, okay. because there are because there are so many points where it does feel like it would it would make so much sense that he had read that he took this from Nietzsche. So but mm. he means Freud maintained that he wasn't influenced by Nietzsche, but people are skeptical about that because there were so many obvious parallels. So there you go. He's, he's, he, I mean, he's like the the fundamental scholar of lying. So yeah. Come here. Why are they disinfecting Venice? Oh, the police orders, Signore. Because of it, and the Shiroko. The Shiroko is oppressive. <laughs> no good for health. <laughs> so there's no sickness in Venice. A sickness? Oh. <laughs> what sort of sickness? Uh, the Shiroko is sickness? Perhaps our police is sickness? Just uh, uh, precautions, signore. So what about yeah. this, uh, this, uh, this uh, Antonio Nato figure? I believe he wrote about... I mean, this is actually something pertinent to the thing we were going to try not to talk about as much, but the plague and... Yeah, I'm only going to say... Yeah, I'm only going to talk a little bit about this because just because time's pressing. And yeah. Time's oppressing and time's be depressing right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the Get things we've mentioned... <laughs> one of the things that we've mentioned a couple of times already is the fact that... Um, uh, 
plague is happening in Venice. Yeah. And, well, I mean, obviously, just, I'm just going to say it just to get out the way. Yeah, coronavirus is happening and it's happening really badly to Italy. That's bloody awful, isn't it? But. It's really uh, bad. We shouldn't make light of it. Like, yeah, we're not going to. But so, so the yeah. point I'm making is nothing to do with that at all, actually. Yeah. But I am going to talk about the thematic quality. I, I'll talk a little bit about the thematic qualities of pla- of the plague itself. That it does put I mean, the obvious, most obvious thing, you know, clearly is the you know the spectre of death it casts over. Um, mm. What occurs here, you know, the de- you know the death in Venice comes down is as a result of cholera, or whatever the the nameless ill that sweeps the cities is. But um, and a rather curious, just a curious thing I want to sort of like mention in passing, is in uh, the theatre and it's double by Antonin Artaud. The opening essay is called "Theatre and the Plague," in which he sketches out a bizarre like series of ideas about what plague actually is. Where he holds that plague, and this is like old school plague, the Black Death plague. Mm. Plague is actually kind of like a psychic miasma uh, that can infect a people and what and the actual physical ailments that derive from plague that derive from plague aren't things that kill you in a set, aren't actually things that kill you and those aren't even like the plague spreading those are like those are psychosomatic symptoms as a result of like the, the mental distress being infected by this psychic anguish actually causes you it's a very 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 strange piece of writing but the reason I mention it is because he kind it is that I think this reinforces the idea of the Dionysian, like, vicious reality lying underneath the events of the book, in some senses, here, because Arto kind of likens... Because one of the things that Arto maintains in this essay is that one of the things that happens in cities that are struck by plague, what is the collapse of the social order, the collapse of morality, and he maintains that that is actually that's the plague itself disrupting our values our like all of these like these these um you know sort of like the 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 boundaries of the psyche that it instills upon itself these are all being torn apart by this psychic element and this is reflected in the general collapse of society that Mm -hmm. happens with the plague um strikes which is why he says you get um people going about perving on corpses having orgies and all that and it's it's a bizarre piece of writing just going to read a little bit from it here just to uh give you an idea what he's talking about here the plague is a superior disease because it is an absolute crisis after which there is nothing left except death or drastic purification in the same way theatre is a disease because it is a final balance that can it, this whole thing is just leading up to him saying and isn't that a bit like going to see a play uh, in the same way uh, theatre is a disease because it is a final balance which cannot be um, abstained without destruction it urges the mind onto delirium which intensifies its energy and finally from a human viewpoint we can see that the effect of the theatre is as beneficial as the plague impelling us to see ourselves as we are making the masks fall and divulging our world's lies aimlessness meanness and even two-facedness it shakes off stifling material dullness which even overcome the senses clearest testimony and collectively reveals their dark powers and hidden strength to men 
urging them to take a nobler, more heroic stand in the face of destiny than they would have assumed without it. I don't know if Arto, because uh, Arto is not someone that I know an enormous amount about as a thinker, but we are going to talk about him probably a little bit more in the next episode. I should um, imagine, so I yeah. Um, so just to tip our hats there. So I don't know if Arto explicitly refers to Nietzsche in any point of his writing, but there's such an obvious Nietzscheanism to that, mm. the idea that especially the theatre as a kind of magical event, a psychic event, and his kind of this bizarre comparison he makes between theatre and plague as yeah. these dionizing explosions of the real in all of its darkness and its and its and its impossibility almost or the impossibility of our being able to comprehend it which cause forces us to either just be destroyed by it or encouraging the apollonian resurgence of vigor to counter it so both of them being all sort of both of them being sources of health or signs of a healthy culture that either you know sort of it simply should be done away with and and is or it's able to you know impel it to reasserting the principium individuationis reasserting the heroism of the beautiful against yeah. over and against the face of nature okay yeah yeah uh, um i just wanted to say yeah. like um i i'm glad that we included this section. I'm glad that this is being talked about and being given this critical avenue that people can maybe take away from themselves because it's like, uh, this may, I don't want to make too much light of this because there are certain like kind of practicalities involved, but like on a certain level, if you've, uh, no, if you occupy similar circles of Twitter to the ones I do, people have been getting very horny on Twitter. And some of this is actually kind of like out of a kind of necessity that people who, May or may have already intended to set up an early fans have now set up an early fans, but you know because because people can't work and it's actually very bad. But at the same time, it's like there is an ambient air of like I think what kind the of the novelty, the level levelty, the boredom. But whatever it is, many a nude hath been exchanged uh, over the internet over the past two weeks and will continue. Um, the other point I was just going to say is like, hey, Sean, when this ends, do you want to go see a play? I don't care what. Let's just... Or a gig. I mean, oh, I don't think... Yes. <laughs> I think at this point, uh, Pharmacon at the Green Dawn Store is definitely not happening. But, Which is ironic know, seeing this quite a suitable... be quite suitable act, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, Pharmacon, Pharmacon's great noise acts. Go listen mm. to them. Uh, yeah. Great noise acts who aren't fascists, uh, which yeah. is lovely. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, we need we that. We hope. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, okay. Oh, God. I just, sorry, just remembered. I had a dream last night where I was, I was like driving around in the countryside of Suffolk and I arrived at this village and I wanted to think, I think it was like literally just wandered into a shop and ended up having a conversation with an old man about, like, about. The stuff we're talking about here, like ancient Greece and all that, <laughs> and if a dream he'd saw that turns to me and said, "Well, it's very interesting. If you want to know about uh, another really cool guy who talks a lot about the importance of traditional culture, I suggest you read the works of Varg Vikernes." <laughs> <laughs> but never read the works of Varg Vikernes. Do not read Varg. And if yeah. you listen to Burzum, set your Spotify to a private session first, just so you can do so in the privacy of shame. Yes, 
Um, so uh, actually, sorry, I just yeah. a purely tangential note. Morbid curiosity got the better of me, and I decided to put on his new ambient album. And um, it's a bit. There's a there's a one of the pieces on it is called the Land of Thule, which is just you know like noises on a loop with I presumably Varg saying we have not inherited fuel from our ancestors we have borrowed it from our children or just that on a loop for three minutes and it's the cringiest thing there you go yikes <laughs> uh, god damn such fucking nerds Right, um, this has been going on for a very long time. Should we yeah. bring it to a merciful conclusion? Okay, Much like yeah. succumbing I mean, to collar and a deck chair. Yes. So I don't know. One thing I wanted to just bring up, which I just thought we'd like, was fun. Uh, and I think like you mentioned this right up the top of the show. If we if we don't edit that bit out, but there is something. Do you remember that quote I read out like two out two two and a half hours ago? Yeah, about? it sounds like something Lovecraft would have written. It sounds very much like something Lovecraft would have written. Uh, and that put me in mind of the fact that leading up to this episode, I spent two years working on and off on a big kind of essay project linking um, studying Death in Venice as a work of weird fiction that I then never published for probably reasons that you can understand from having heard this podcast. I was fucking tripping over all my own caveats and constantly going down avenues that I would then be like, oh... No, oh, no, I haven't I haven't read enough of this. I don't understand this properly. I need to go back and articulate that this. So maybe I will one day publish that, but it was the bane of my existence and caused me a lot of stress. Um right, maybe, book, maybe turn it into a book and publish as a repeater. Well, I was thinking of like possibly saving it and if I do eventually do an MA in critical theory using it as the foundation of my dissertation just simply because it was impossible to write about it in a way that was entertaining while taking on the um, full necessity of, you know, it's the fully necessary weight of critical analysis that such a subject matter warrants in a way that I hope hasn't been repeated in this podcast. I hope you are having fun. We've, we've, we've made a couple of jibes and jibes and jokes. and um, We made you, you laugh while we yeah. made you learn. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, so I'm just going to, like, call up... Um, okay, so... We talked about, again, again, linking back to the Lovecraft episode, and I did actually, when I suggested both of these episodes, I had already kind of, like, written various drafts of that essay at this point, of that of this essay at that point. Um, but basically, um, so I mentioned um, there was, like, kind of the hypothetical relationship between Robert H. Barlow and H.P. Lovecraft, uh, who were collaborators on the story The Night Ocean, uh, and then there was that novel by, uh, I forget his name, but um, the guy who like wrote a, a kind of fictionalized biography of both of them, uh, he you know, outright saying that they were in a kind of um, preternatural homosexual relationship, um, Barlow at the time being like 14 uh, and 16 when Lovecraft died. But um, yeah, basically the, the story they wrote together and this being a story that is um, written by some people who were hypothetically in a relationship, or at least it was understood, it's a matter of kind of his roughly historic fact. Brackets the only historic source we have on um, on Barlow's putative homosexuality is from um, that that wonderfully reliable font of un um, of objective and un unfiltered knowledge that is 
William H. Burroughs. Um, shall William I read S. Burroughs. William S. S. Burroughs talking about Robert H. Barlow. Shall I just read that quote, actually, just because uh, and people might not remember it directly from, um, from the episode, but... R.H. Barlow. Yeah, he's on Wikipedia listed as an anthropologist because that was the main bit of his career. But um, of um, of Barlow, Burroughs said um, in a letter to Alan to another megapedo, Alan Ginsberg, dated January 11th, a queer professor from KC, uh, Mexico, uh, head of the anthropology department at MCC, brackets Mexico City College, where I collect my $75 per month, knocked himself off a few days ago with an overdose of goofballs, vomit all over the bed. I can't see this suicide kick. Um, So, yeah, tragic events written of in a very frivolous style by Burroughs, who we still kind of like as an author, but like, yeah. Um, so the story I mean, that- like Burroughs is the only beat I like. Yeah, uh, I've, I've, I, I can't stand. I've, um, I can't stand um, Ginsburg. No, I mean, not only for like his horrible cap, the, 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 for his Peter Ring, but also I just think um, ha- I think Howl is a terrible poem and mm, an uh, endless just- balls. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, and Karak, I just. Uh, I'm not sure if I've actually. Kind bo- of like, like Karak, honestly, I've just not bothered, and I won't. You know what is good Just though, gonna... actually, as a as a fun tangent, uh, there's a um, there's a novel by a man named uh, Nick Mamatis uh, called Move Underground, which is a Lovecraftian kind of Cthulhu mythos uh, story written in the style of the Beats, with um, Jack Kerouac as the main character and Burroughs occasionally appearing as this kind of visual figure, and that is very good. And I believe it is available to just download for free. Uh, I think it, like when it was originally published, it was just put out in 2004 as a, as a free book. Um, you may want to go read it after this episode. I might read it again. But um, and yeah, I, I can't remember how explicitly critical it is of the beats or whether it is at all. I think it like, I think there's like one passing reference to like not being particularly fond of Allen Ginsberg, but I don't think it goes much more than that. But anyway, so the um, the story Barlow Lovecraft the 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 gayest story that they um, the gay the, you know, the story they wrote together, which is arguably the gayest story of Lovecraft's um, milieu, second perhaps or perhaps uh, leading um, on Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is kind of like a gay liberation narrative as we outlined in that previous episode um, about Lovecraft. Um, this is like a, a, a reiteration of that same story and is also an eerie parallel to um, to Death in Venice. And um, alongside, I'm actually looking at the draft of my, my long abandoned essay dated like Death in Elston draft 30th of December 2018 and I want to cry. <laughs> um, it opens. I went to Elston Beach not only for the pleasures of sun and ocean, but to wet rest a weary mind. Since I knew no person in the little town, which thrives on summer vacationists and presents only blank windows during most of the year, there seemed no likelihood that I might be disturbed. This pleased me, for I did not wish to see anything but the expanse of pounding surf and the beach lying before my temporary home. And yet that which later befell me by, by the lonely shore may have grown solely from the mental constitution behind such concern and fear and mistrust. For I have always been a seeker, a dreamer, and a ponderer on seeking and dreaming, and could say, and who can say what uh, such a nature does not, and who can say that such a nature does not open latent eyes to sensitive to, sensitive to unsuspected worlds and orders of being. 
And I just think this is kind of like the character they're depicting. This was written in 1937. Uh, like, and I think um, Death in Venice had existed in a um, English translation as early as 1924. It's kind of like the anti-Death in Venice because it's talking about a young man uh, kind of exhausted from his artistic labors in New York City and needing to kind of like get out of get out of life and experience something different to kind of rejuvenate himself. Um, but then going to this kind of like gay holiday, you know, um, uh, this kind of like this place where people are holidaying and having a good time, but feeling profoundly alienated from them. And in that state of alienation, experiencing great existential terrors. Um, but specifically when he characterizes this alienation he talks about how he's a young man witnessing kind of revelers who perhaps are like closer to what he should be experiencing but seeing but he actually sees them as grotesque and old and like talks about garishly decorated women and men who are no longer young and stuff and i just think that's it's very it's very striking you know there's this parallel and um i don't actually well I wasn't actually sure where I was going to go from there, but it's like, yeah, this is, that's kind of like, um, well, maybe I will event, maybe I will now publish that article just like in an unedited form with this podcast acting as caveat. Um, and um, just move on to other kind of like Lovecraftian parallels. The other thing being, and this is again, something I brought up in the context of, Donny, of the Donnie Darko episode, the kind of like the effeminacy of death or specifically death characterized as an effeminate man. Um, because, um, we have, we have, like, in, um, you know, and, and we talked about that in the context of Frank, in the context of, like, Chaucer's The Pardoner's Tale, where, um, which I will share when I do the ref thread on this, I think, I don't want to read it now, but, um, but we get these two kind of, like, grotesque figures who actually, I guess, kind of feature draw onto the Freudian uncanny to some extent, which is the old man draw like made up to look young. Um, but we have another iteration of that in the form of um of the weird kind of like musician uh who's described specifically as being strangely ageless. Uh I wanna just like find that quote because I mean like the quote about um yeah the well actually the the description um one kind of like uh, description of all of them that uh, Thomas Mann gives is strange and shade-like creatures, the senescent dandy, the goat-bearded man from below decks traits with vague gestures and confused dream, words through the mind of the reclining artist and eventually he fell asleep, that's him falling asleep with these strange images, but he describes the stage, the strange performer as being like his his skinny neck projected from the soft collar of his sport shirt, which he bore uh, which he wore to his city clothes, exposing an unusually large and nude-looking Adam's apple. His pallid, round-nosed, beardless face, which made it difficult to guess his age, seemed ploughed up by grimacing and vice, and somehow the grinning of his nimble mouth did not f fit the too deep furrows, defiant, imperious, and almost wild between his, his reddish brows. Um, but what really caused Ashenbach to focus on him was the observation that the suspicious figure seemed to carry with him a suspicious ambience. Every time at the refrain he seemed to, he started to dance around, shaking hands, coming close to Ashenbach's table, and every time that happened, his body and clothes emanated a cloud of disinfectant smell. He's describing him like a strange like puppet or a kind of composite of things. Um, and just this put me in mind of Nyalathotep, uh, mm. who in like 
I think it's in the eponymous story, Nihilathotep is characterised as this great kind of like strange dancing figure, the travelling sideshow thing that moves between towns and enthralls people with these like garish dances and stuff. And it's like, he's like, he's the model of the trickster god who is uh, identified with a kind of death-like figure uh, and has that kind of ambiguously kind of ambiguous genderlessness. Uh, but yeah, I just I just thought that was that was quite good. Um, it is quite good. It is quite good. I think just like if you're a Lovecraft fan, just read Death in Venice with that in mind. It's got to be quite fun. Um, yeah, I think that's that's. I think we've spun our wheels enough on this. Um, I think. Had, yeah, um, we're just th- coming in under. Well, it's just about to hit three hours now. So yep. again, this is uh, shorter than um, the Hannibal episode, but also. <laughs> There's an understanding that the Hannah, that this is, we we said up front, this is going to be a heavy one. We're going to be talking about a lot. And there's a lot that we kind of can't just let slide that we have to, we did by necessity have to articulate in some detail with reference to sources, which we have done. So it's, it should come as no surprise that this is three hours long. Yeah. As always, we like to try and give you a value for money because we know we only, because we are we only put out one episode a month you know we like mm. to make we like them to be long we like them to cover as much as they possibly possibly could so mm-hmm. there you go yeah. um so that was death in venice mm-hmm. and uh so, so i suppose yeah. like a few few passing final words uh we do have a patreon uh which we must remember to plug otherwise no one will give us money yeah. we have a patreon i'm pleased to give us money um, if you are to like to do yeah. so, just like so, you yes. know, recompense. We've put a lot of work into this. You know, just, I don't mean to sound threatening. <laughs> don't guilt them, Lucy. Don't <laughs> or guilting. Guilt them. Okay. Uh, as so, um, keep safe. Remember to um, socially distance yourselves. Yeah. Um, don't go and don't go and see friends and family. Stay indoors if you can. Work from home. Work from home. Do uh, a podcast. You Do po- no, no, not, you're not allowed. You're not allowed not to start by that. You're obviously. not allowed to start a podcast during the coronavirus lockdown. Do you know we are allowed to record podcasts because we've been doing them for about two years now. But you're not allowed to start a coronavirus podcast unless it's good. Um, yeah, I've not listened to it yet, but Urbanomic have been doing. Oh, uh, a Urbanomic pod- the Plague Pod with uh, like I think Matt was Matt on that. I think Matt's been on there. Like they got, uh, they've had Ray, uh, Reza Negarastani on there. Um, and, um, I've not got, I, I've not listened to them yet because I've just, I've unfortunately, not unfortunately, I'm very fortunate to have a job that lets me work from home. So I'm still employed. I'm very, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Um, but it's I also just, it. it's got Nick's land on it as well. That's another of the figures who, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've just not got around to what listen to any of them because I'm busy and when I finish working I often don't want to have to think about things. Anyway, so um without further ado, yeah. I would like to say to you, listener, stay weird. And keep it signal. Goodbye. Good night. Bye. Okay, so I forgot to mention because I didn't actually know in the context of the podcast I found out this morning, but like the name Dennis is derived from Dionysius. Isn't that crazy? That is extremely crazy. Like, I've met multiple Dennises, and it's like... I mean, Dionysius was a name that was used in the classical world. I mean, one of the examples being Dionysius the Areopagite, for all you theologians out there. But that's not actually why I um, scheduled this kind of amend... Not amendment, like, 
Addendum. Uh, post addendum, postscript to the podcast, which is one thing we didn't mention is that um, while despite having been like horribly creeped on and having generally a bad time in relation to the main film he's known for, Death in Venice, Bjorn Andresen did go on to have an acting career, and um, most notably recently. He was in the film uh, Midsummer, the uh, Ariasta folk horror film Midsummer, and um, this is this is crazy for two reasons. One, it's because like we get to see this kind of like, for better or worse, kind of like legendary queer icon, and you know just like very very iconic, influential figure from film, um, as an old man jumping off a cliff and then getting his head smashed in <laughs> with a huge wooden hammer. Um, <laughs> and so that's that's one thing. The other thing uh, is the fact that um, actually, no, I think that's mainly it. That's most of what I want to say. I mean, I don't know. I just wanted to ask, like, uh, Sean, do you agree that uh, Midsummer counts as an effective sequel, or at least an extension of the greater Death in Venice cinematic universe? Yes, I would, Lucy. Great. Um, sorry to call you so early. Um, <laughs> just, this is the next morning, and I just kind of had a lot of thoughts on waking up. Well, well, yeah, I got a message from Lucy saying, "Sean, we need to Skype right now, and we need to record it." I can't. It's too. I will. Ex- I can't explain now. <laughs> <laughs> too important. Anyway, um, so this is technically the end of the uh, episode. Um, so. Yes. All right. Uh, oh, goodbye. Good- Goodbye, listeners. Bye.